the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another edition of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Let me get right over to my co-host for this episode. It is the one, the only Steve Brown. Good day, Steve. Glad to have you back. Oh, fantastic, Mitch. Thanks for having me back, as they said in Spinal Tap. Thanks for letting me in. Ah, absolutely. It's, it's my pleasure. And you know what? This one is the perfect episode to have you on because my guests are, of course, the one, the only Phil Collin of Def Leppard. And we'll talk about all that Def Leppard stuff in you. But also I have John Karabi of the Dead Daisies and Lita Ford drummer Bobby Rock. So that's a, that's, that's a sweet little lineup, right? Great, great show. All friends of mine, you know, God, you know, uh, where, do, where do I start? You know, Phil Collin, I think everybody knows the story. He's my, my brother, my godfather, one of my best friends in the world. So, yeah, and John Karabi, we go back to before John was, even, you know, so I think when he was writing that band, The Scream, he, uh, his, his wife at the time used to do makeup for Niels Loslauer, the photographer. That was the first time I met John, the first photo session Trickster ever did with the great Niels Loslauer out in, uh, out in L.A. His wife, Valerie, at the time was doing makeup for us, and John was hanging out. And, you know, we had mutual friends, Johnny D, the Britney Fox guy, Snake, and Rachel from Skid Row. So, yeah, Clark Crab is, a, you know, a, a lifelong friend. I love that guy. Yeah, and those guys are great. And of course, you've got the Eric Martin band that's going out. We will be at the same place on August 17th at the New England Rock Festival in Chicopee, Mass. But you're also doing the Arcata Theater in Illinois on August 24th, the Token Lounge in Westland, Michigan, August 25th, and the Grand Casino in Hinkley, Minnesota on September 6th. Oh. Yeah, right. It's going to be great. Awesome. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great to be back with Eric. You know, he's been he's been on the summer tour with Mr. Big all around the world. So they're doing that thing. And it's always great when we get back together because we have a great little band. You know, we have Joey Casada, who, uh, you know, from the band VO2 on drums, who's a tremendous drummer. He also plays with PJ and I in the Jim Brewer band, the comedian Jim Brewer. So we got a hot little band and we have we have a lot of laughs together, as you can imagine. And you'll see it up in Chicopee. So we're really looking forward to getting back to with Eric. Yeah, and Jim, by the way, we all know him as a comedian and stuff, but when he does his imitations of ACDC and all, the guy's as much a rock star as anybody. I mean, he's, he's, what a talent that guy. Oh, he's totally legit. And I don't know if you ever heard of his his record that came out about two years ago called yep. Jim Brew and the Loud and Rowdy. Yep. I mean, it's a legit record. You know, Rob Caggiano from Anthrax and Volbeat produced it. I mean, it is legit. And then this guy can sing for real. Like, it's no joke. He has got pipes. He can sing ACDC, Metallica, Van Halen. Last show, he did Mean Street by Van Halen. You know, the guy's just a super talent as well as being just one of the coolest and funniest guys on the planet. Yeah, he absolutely. Now, of course, Eric Martin's probably going to have a few more American dates. We can't talk about those yet, but you can head over to ericmartin.com, and that's just ericmartin.com, and the dates are all there. And so as the new dates that we're talking about start mm -hmm. happening, you can get the latest information, right? Isn't that cool? That's right, baby. I'm the one who wants to check on seeing when Eric Martin and the Tricksters are playing again. That's what you do. 
That's great. So, so, and by the way, I, w- I will also be seeing Def Leppard in Massachusetts at uh, Fenway Park on August 11th. So I'm excited about that. A lot of, a lot of Mitch down in Massachusetts in August, which is going to be great. But um, Phil Collin, my dear Phil, on tour with Journey, you were part of that tour for for a very brief time. Just let's go over some of that again, and you, you know, talk to me just a little bit about about Phil and and what it was taking his place. I know I know we've talked about this on a different episode, but for fans that, that maybe might have missed it, let's let's just sort of talk to them quickly about stepping in for the maestro, the Mister Phil. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know the the rock god himself. Uh, you know the golden the golden. British golden god of rock guitar, Phil Collins, uh, my dear friend, my brother. Um, it's I've said this a hundred times. Those guys are like family to me. I've been their little brother for 30 years now, you know, and long story short, when your friends or your family need help, you do whatever you need to do to make it happen. And when it comes to Def Leppard, you know, it's five years for me now being in the camp as far as being a, you know, so, so so-called employee or whatever, you know, right-hand man, the sixth leopard, whatever you want to make of it. But, you know, I spent the last four years filling in for Vivian Campbell. And then this was a totally unexpected and, um, you know, not planned uh, medical emergency that Phil had to take care of with his family. And when I got the call, it was just like, hey, man, just let give me give me an hour to pack my bags. And I was up in Albany, uh, uh, Albany, New York, within, you know, four hours of getting the call. And, um, you know, I think, you know, to summarize, and I think most of the people know it by now, you know, when I got up there and started, you know, started realizing we were doing and everything, and then I overheard Phil, you know, and this was the most powerful thing for me, and it kind of validated my service with Def Leppard, if you will, was I heard him saying to uh, our trainer, Eric the Trainer, who's the band's personal trainer out on the road and who's become a good friend of mine now, and he said to him, he said, there's only one guy on the planet who could possibly do this, and it's Steve. And that was the moment for me where I was kind of like, holy shit. You know, that was complete validation for all of the years because Phil was the one who brought me in to fill in for Vivian. And he was the one who emphatically told the band, I have the guy. There's no need to look for anybody else. This is the perfect guy. And so I got to give him credit in the sense of here he was, you know, not saying for filling in for somebody else in the band. He was saying that filling in me, taking his shoes. So that I was humbled and honored. And of course, more than anything, I want to take care of Phil's family and let him rest at ease. And the other guys, Joe, Sav, Viv, and Rick, that they could rest their heads knowing that the guy coming in is going to be an instantaneous replacement in the sense that I'm going to nail all the vocals, all the guitar parts, all the moves, all the spotlight cues, everything. So those guys don't even have to think that there's a fill in or a sub replacement, you know, filling in though. I could never be what Phil Collin is. You know, I, I, I will say that the 30 years of seeing Def Leppard tour and every tour they've been on for the last 30 years, I've been there multiple times. So no one knows their show better than I do. So it was just, it was extremely natural. 
And, uh, you know, and, and that's what we did and that's what we do, you know, cause like I said, the most important thing is we're family. And if any of those guys ever needed me to take care of something for their family, I told Phil, I'll fly out to California and do what I, what I need to do to help you out. I will always be there for you guys. And they know that from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. And, and what I like is afterwards when they were asked about in the media, uh, Rick Allen went on record and said that he was eternally grateful for steve brown now now how cool is that i mean here are these rock gods they can call up anybody and yet they have this reverence for you and and just this great appreciation you know you're not just a fill-in guy like you said you're family to them and so you're eternally grateful i mean that thought those are like serious words right there. That's not just, oh, hey. Oh. Right? It, it's really, it, it really tugs at the heart, you know, because Rick is such a such a warm guy. And, you know, he's we, him and I have hit it off over the years and, you know, definitely enjoy a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, beers. So we, we, have, we have a couple of things in common, but all of them, you know, just an incredible, incredible thing. But, you know, there aren't many, you know, and getting back to what I said before, you know, and I said this in the last interview, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of musicians, guitar players who think they could do this job. They're, 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 it's extremely small because the bigger picture of just playing the guitar parts, playing the guitar parts is easy. It's being able to nail those vocals and have that sound. And I've said this numerous times. Luckily, my scratchy talking voice has paid off for me in this because I have that vocal blend with those guys that I don't think there's anybody else on the planet who could do it. So yeah. no. you know, that, that's really what you have to understand. Yeah, and I agree. And those those Def Leppard vocal harmonies are as much part of the sound as anything. And so if you get some guy who just can't do it and bums it out, you ruin the show. So no, no, you got to be it's it's like deep science, right? I mean, you really got to be spot on. So It is and you it's it's got to be in your DNA and and again, you know, Def Leppard is, you know, the greatest part about this whole scenario, Mitch, and for everybody listening. Def Leppard is one of my favorite bands, the top, top three of all time. I still continuously, you know, listen to Def Leppard just as a fan, but I listen to them when I'm writing, when I'm producing, they are my benchmark, Mutt Lang and Def Leppard. Everything that I do, I base on them. You know, it's kind of, you know, if you took Van Halen, Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and threw it into a mix, that's kind of what the Steve Brown style is, if you will. So, yep. It's it's just incredible, and you know, again, this is family. And when your family calls and they're in need, you do whatever you need to do to make it happen, and that's what I did. Yeah, and I agree. So let's let's listen to uh, brother Phil Collins. How about that, right, family? Let's <laughs> the brother. That's right, my brother, my Godfather, my brother. Yeah. So here he is, the one, the only guitarist extraordinaire, and I mean that, Phil. Colin. We are speaking with Def Leppard guitarist Phil Collin. Phil, always, always a great pleasure to chat with you. Me too. Thank you. It's a great speaking to you again. That's yeah. very cool. It's been it's been a while, but there's there's so much to talk about. Uh, I mean, you did the the G three tour earlier this year. You're on the road with Journey. You've got the the Tesla album that you produced. The uh, the new box set that I have right in front of me here. The uh, CD collection volume one. So let, let's start off with the Journey Tour uh, with Def Leppard. I just had a nice chat with Neil Sean about it, but what I find interesting about this package is if this was 1988, 
we would never have seen Def Leppard with Journey. We never would have seen Whitesnake with Foreigner. We never would have seen Styx with Tesla. Um, talk to me about these sort of these packages and why, you know, all these years later, these bands that were like, no, you can't have them tour together are now touring together and fans are just loving it. I mean, you're doing Wrigley Field. You're doing Fenway Park. You're not doing these backyard barbecues. It's it's a real, real love. Absolutely. So what happened, um, this was in the 90s. Uh, someone suggested, one of the promoters in the US suggested Bob Dylan go out with Willie Nelson. And everyone went, are you high? Are you insane? That's never going to work. And it worked such a treat. And, and it was a charm. Everyone just loved both artists. It, 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 all of a sudden, it made it one and one equals 20, you know, instead of one and one equals two. And I remember when we first toured with Journey, you know, Howard Kaufman, our manager, who has since passed away, and he suggested that. And we, we said, really? You think that's going to work? And it was amazing. When we toured with Journey in 2006, I mean, the first show we played was uh, Camden, uh in New Jersey, and right. it was uh, 23,000. 3,000 people couldn't get in outside. And, and the whole tour continued like that. It was a, a frenzy almost, you know. And this is shaping up to be the same. You know, we just played um, Atlanta the other night. And we'd done Toronto, you know, we'd done the, the, the stadium there. And it was crazy. It, it, all of a sudden, it, it's, it's one-on-one does equal three. You know, it's, uh, it, it's a lot more. So those kind of things really make sense because um, everyone's on their A game and uh, it's not just the same old, same old, you know, it's in, enough interest. If you're a journey fan, you have enough interest to see a Def Leppard show, especially if you're getting it for free and, and, and the same thing the other way around. So it's amazing. It, it, it's really incredible. And, and this one's just like the, the last tour. So every, both bands are playing unbelievably well. You know, the, the musicianship is insane the songs are, 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 are stupid you know it's kind of all these hits you know bang 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 everyone's singing you know every single night you know I'm, i go off i sing journey songs you know they're in my head and and vice versa so the fans are getting just ultra treat it's amazing so that's why this works and that's why these bands kind of do that because they, they picked up on that kind of format or concept you know from the Bob Dylan, Willie Nelson tour, if you, you know, back in the day. Back in the day. It's a great tour. Now, earlier in the tour, at the end of May, I guess, you, you had to step away for a family emergency, and you had Steve Brown come in. He, of course, came in for um, uh, Vivian before as well. Uh, just talk to me about that situation and having that ability to go to Steve and having, you know, a competent player who just steps in and keeps the machine going and keeps, you know, takes one for the team kind of thing. Well, Steve, now this was amazing because he was actually coming to the show. And um, I don't know if you know, you know, Helen, my wife, was giving birth to, yeah. to our son. But there, there was real bad complications. And she, she actually died and they brought her back to life and internal bleeding and just craziness. And this isn't common knowledge, but it is now. But um, So I, I was actually on tour. And, and then when this happened, you know, I, I obviously had to, to go to California. Um, so I, I flew out there. Steve actually was coming to the show anyway. And I said, Steve, I know you know Viv's parts. He, he, he sings great. He can do all of this stuff. Uh, so he, he learned my parts and, and my vocal parts, which is more uh, serious than the guitar parts, I think, in both of that. In, in our band, you know, we, we have backing vocals. It's an instrument. And, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, when Steve passed away, you know, we, we actually said we want someone who's going to fit in with us and, and someone who can sing. And a lot of guitar players can't actually sing. So... 
with, with Steve, you know, he, he can sing like a champ. You know, he can he can he knows all Joe's parts. Even you know, he sings amazing. He's, he's a great guitar player. So it was a no brainer. And I said, can you step in for me? So everyone was cool. They said go. I went and everything was fine. Everything's great now. Little Jackson was born. He's he's doing great. And Helen's doing great. And you know, I'm back out on tour. You know, so um, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Thank, thanks for Steve. He, he really kind of saved the day there. That was wonderful. And it's and it's good to hear that he knows Joe's parts because I was actually talking to Steve on the phone and I said to him, you know, if if, if Joe cancels out, will you be able to step in? And he's like, oh, come on, I can't. <laughs> so so maybe he can. Um, talk to me a little bit about this G3 tour that you did back in uh, the beginning of the year with Joe Satriani and Petrucci, because a lot of folks look at those guys and say, oh, those are the the musos and the players and, you know, the Uli John Roth types and the Yngwie Momsteins types. And, and your name doesn't come up, but from every report, from every show, from every fan on Facebook, it's like, Phil nailed it. Phil blew them away. Phil was a... Talk to me about doing that and not having sort of pour some sugar on me behind you to sort of save the day. Um, well, first off, you know, thanks to Joe Satriani because he, you know, he invited me me in. And uh, we we done uh, one of the G4 camps uh, last year. And, and that's really what spurred it off. It was such a... a a great time. Joe's such an amazing, wonderful human being, and let alone most outrageous guitar player. He's so influential and just just amazing. So um, he said, "Hey, do you want to do the tour?" And um, you know, I brought the Delta Deep tour. You know, we do a half hour set. You know, it was me, Debbie Blackwell Cook, um, Forrest Robinson on drums, and and Robert Delao couldn't make it. So my friend Craig Martini, who is incredible, I met on the G4 thing. He used to play with uh, Paul Gilbert, so he's just just an amazing bass player and he sings and all this stuff. So we, we done that set and uh, it brought a different thing to it. And, and I, I love John Petrucci. He's just an amazing guy as well. Monster guitar player. And, and then we would actually get on stage and do this jam every night uh, at the end, you know, we'd all do our set and then we'd come up together and it was so inspiring. Um, I've got to say, I got so much out of the toy. Obviously I had to, you know, raise my game because these guys are just, on another level so i literally had to play a lot more than i normally do and i had my guitar higher so i could actually get to some of the licks a bit bit easier and, and a lot of different things but what was inspiring we'd do this jam thing where we'd go around the table you know this is all live in front of our audience someone would play something and then that would inspire the next guy to come in and there was no showing off there was absolutely zero ego on the tour and that goes down to all the bands present joe's bands john's band you know delta deep and and the crew, every everything, it just worked. It was the opposite of, it was just a very humbling experience for everyone. You know, we were trying to create music together, which is what you're supposed to do. And I think um, a lot of people tend to view guitar playing as like an Olympic sport, like a competitive thing. And it's not. And it's when you get around someone who are, who's that good that their pedigree really starts showing, you know, the fact that, that we can start creating music together on the fly. And and to me, you know, even bringing, you know, amazing uh, guests up, you know, to jam with us and, and that they could get into that same kind of headspace was, was amazing. So uh, if anything, it brought out my guitar playing a lot more as well, just even on that tour, you know, just being around John and Joe, you know, they inspired me to to play stuff I wouldn't normally play, you know, and, and just kind of, you know, on the spur of the moment, not worry about it. You know, obviously I've got supreme confidence in my 
you know, performance because I've, I've been doing it for years in front of millions of people. But this was different. This was this was um, just getting inspired on a whole different level, and, and, and the fact that I could just kind of all of us could zone out and just create and just just play together, weaving about in and out of each other's uh, styles and playing and what, what modes we were in. It was just beautiful. I just loved it. So I'd love to do another one. It was it was just a blast. Yeah, it, it, I, it didn't come through Montreal, but I got to see, of course, the YouTube stuff, which, of course, doesn't do it justice. But even on YouTube, it sounded phenomenal. Does does it inspire you enough, though, to, to do a Phil Collin instrumental guitar solo album, or we're not there yet? I already started it, actually, and it totally did. And, and <laughs> again, exactly that. Um, so I've already started. I've got a few songs on the go already. Um and I, I don't know, you know, I was talking to Paul Cook, who, who, who plays in Man Rays and, and the professionals, and obviously in, in the Sex Pistols, and he said, you know, you should do a solo album. He said, you know, the Man Rays album should have been a solo album, your solo album. could have just, he said it thought it would have had more kind of teeth. So he, he suggested that just earlier on, just after I did the G3 thing. And uh, I thought, well, that's a great idea. That, that would be really, really super cool. So I've actually started doing some stuff already, and it's wide open it's very diverse you know i'm very disappointed in in where jazz went because it's such a a, an amazing art form and and people it they they lost it after after the 70s there was a real kind of a jazz fusion thing and then people just got either really self-indulgent or they they lost the vibe like you hear some of the stanley clark stuff from the 70s it was incredible you know return to forever and they were trying to achieve something and did that kind of stop? Some of the Jeff Beck stuff from the seventies was amazing, and uh, it either went really light and kind of jazz light, or you know, elevator jazz, or or it kind of just got totally self indulgent. And I think there was so much room within the jazz format to to make it uh, very creative, almost like add funk and rock and but commercial version of it. So one of the songs I'm doing, I've actually already started. I've got my friend Scott Wilkie, who actually plays on the new Tesla album with me. I got him to play, and he's incredible. Um, we actually started a song already, and it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really thrilled. So I've, I'm so busy. I've, I've actually started a, a Delta Deep album. We've got about seven songs on the go there as well. So we, we are just like in amongst it. So yeah, there's a lot yeah, going on. There, there really is. So, so you mentioned Man Rays and Delta Deep, and I've interviewed you for both of those. So, so talk to me about that creative need to step outside of what Def Leppard does and to say, hey, I've got something else to offer. And here are these bands, because it would be very safe to just say, you know what, I'm going to sit back, I'm going to go to Maui. And when Def Leppard calls for a tour, I'll go. So talk to me about those challenges and, and why do those very sort of different projects, Man Rays, I don't want to call it punk, but it certainly was more aggressive than what Def Leppard does. Delta Deep, obviously more rhythm and blues than what, what you know, uh, Def Leppard does. Um, talk to me about that creative, those creative outlets and, and wanting to do those other projects. Um, you know, when I started playing guitar, was, I, I saw Deep Purple and, and that kicked it off. But I was, I was really into Motown. I was into reggae, like I was just saying, like jazz and, and fusion and just everything. You know, Top 40, you know, great songwriting, you know, after meeting Mutt Lang and him teaching me how to write songs and how to sing, basically. Uh, you you take all this, you know, like I was saying about the Joe Satriano and John Petrucci thing, you take something away with you and you, you, you're more than you were the day before. So you have all of this stuff coming in and, and you need an outlet. If, if you're an artist, I mean, some people don't, they're just either hack songwriters or they, they're okay just 
doing the odd performance. I, I get ideas running through me all the time. Like I said, the more you let in, the more comes out. And um, we interesting thing happened with us in Def Leppard, you know, especially after the, the trilogy of, of, you know, Pyromania, Hysteria and Adrenalize. We um we were in a, a place where we were like we're we're doing the same old same old here now so we 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 need to just be a bit more open that's when we done the slang album and no one really liked that we loved wait it. I loved it I loved it yeah, all I, I want is ever all I want is everything is one of the best songs you've ever done and boy I'd love to see well, you play you. that live thank you I I I I love that album we all do and, yes. and it was very important but it it said a lot we couldn't go that kind of route you know you the fans go most of the fans go uh, they kind of switched off they they wanted something a, a little bit more like um the other stuff so right. for us it, it becomes more challenging to even write Def Leppard songs you were uh, except the last album we had so much fun doing doing the, the self-titled album um because we threw everything out the window we we, we kind of had a a, a theme, but not normally, not like we normally do. We go, okay, it has to be this. It sounds like this, and blah blah blah. Um, so the the other the obvious choice would be to be writing and recording other songs in in a different band format, whatever you want to do. So that's you know for me and, and Joe doing the down and out thing. It's mo- it's most essential for us to to keep that um, creative flow going, and um, we can in Def Leppard. It's but like I said, it's a it's a harder thing. We've already started that album as well. I was actually writing a, a song for that the other day. And um, we've got some really great stuff on the go, you know? So when everyone goes, Oh, when are you going to start that? We've actually already started it. It's just that, that we haven't gone into a studio per se, you know, um, I know you want to talk about the Tesla album, but uh, just, just in passing, you know, the way we did that, we were on tour together and we, we would literally sometimes go, okay, we've got 25 minutes. We're going to do a guitar part, you know, with, with, technology the way it is now you can do a record a guitar you can just literally the sound's already there you've got it kind of in the computer you just plug in and you you get the part which we did you know sometimes we would say we'd have a few hours other times it literally would be minutes and we'd we'd get one or two parts but um we'd go backstage we'd go in hotel rooms we'd go in bunkers buses and we'd record all the time it was a very inspiring way of doing stuff it was so exciting and um it's a bit like that with, with all the other stuff I do as well. It's, um, and all of us, you know, Vivian does his own thing and, uh, it's a a release, you know, uh, Rick's gotten into, to an art thing and it's, uh, again, you, you need that kind of, uh, artistic release. Uh, and it actually makes your, the stuff for Def Leppard even more, uh, substantial, if you like, and more prominent and, and kind of, has more substance, I think, because you've got all these other influences. And like I said, you, you're better today than you were yesterday. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's onwards and upwards, and I love that kind of trajectory, really. All right, so so I'm I'm staring at the clock here because I want I, so I want to get all this stuff in. Let's quickly talk about the the Def Leppard new album. We we just mentioned a little bit, but first of all, just talk to me about the need to make a new album because you look at the stadium run right now, the shows now, and and all the American tours of the last decade. They're sold out. People are coming. There's no need to write any new music. You put Def Leppard on the marquee. We know it's it's a sold out show. So why the need and, and why sort of the desire to, to make new Def Leppard stuff? Because it's not oh, necessary. Absolutely. It'd okay. be 
It, it, no, it totally is. It's the lifeblood. It'd be so lame if we didn't. It, like, for example, this song I was writing, the I'm going, this is going to be awesome. When we get the backing vocals on it, I can hear the two guitar part thing. You know, it was um, almost like, a, you know, Photograph Promises, that kind of song, kind of up, up tempo and that. And I was just getting very excited about it. And it was obviously a Def Leppard song. And it's, um, what would I do with it if, if I didn't have that outlet of, of, of writing? You know, like I said, I've got outlets doing other stuff like blues or, or funk or, or, you know, even gospel, like there's some of the stuff on the new Delta Deep album. There's one of the songs that actually sounds like hard rock gospel, which I've never heard before. And it, um, I'm really excited about that. But also about Def Leppard, you know, it's, a, it's onwards and upwards. A, a, a little quick story here. Mutt Lang was always trying to write the song the best song of his career he was always trying to do that. And, um, I, I was sitting in Dublin once and, and this nun came on TV, this little Irish nun with an acoustic guitar. And she said, and today we're going to learn st- still the one by Shania Twain. And I thought, okay, I'm going to call Mutt and say, I think you've nailed that song. You know, if, if this little sister so-and-so is actually showing us the chords of, of one of your songs, um, I think you've nailed that thing, but it was never good enough for Matt. And he's, he's constantly, you know, something will come up and a, a muse will come up. And like, I know he produced the muse as a bad pun, but um, a muse will come along and, and actually inspire him to write something. And they go, oh, wow. And you get really excited about it. And that's really what it is with Jeff Leppard. It's like, you know, just even talking to, to Joe, Joe's got this idea for a song that we, that we were talking about early on this year. And, uh, I'm really excited to get into that as well. So we still have, we're excited about the band. And if we weren't, you'd know about it. it you'd, you'd see it when we, when we do tours and, and perform and stuff. We're really excited. We're excited about the, the way this production works on, on this tour. We're like, whoa, yeah, this is awesome. You know, Whether the greens move and everything kind of moves and moving parts and lasers and God knows what. It's so exciting. And it's like that when you when you write a new song. So it's totally essential we do new Def Leppard music because we have it kind of itching and scratching and dying to get out. So um, we, we we have um, we have a, an audience. We have Def Leppard fans that that that, that crave that. So um, it's a two way thing. You know, we we have to exercise that demon, and and people you know they love to hear it. So it's a uh, it's not so I guess when that stops and when we get tired would be the time to call it a day. And and that's what's great about 2018 is that there's also no pressure. You don't have a record company saying we need a hit right. single or we need this by, you know, by the Christmas so so it's great. Um Yes. You know, right? I mean, it, it that's also before I move on then that has also got to be refreshing to write a new album essentially very free you can do a song like man enough and you can do an album like slang and you can do this stuff without people saying well that that's not the box you're not in the you know um, it's beautiful i gotta say the last album we did was exactly that we we had no um ulterior motive it wasn't a business agenda it wasn't someone else's business agenda it was it was a pure artistic decision and it really felt good it was Probably the purest album we've done, you know, apart from Slang, which is pretty pure. But the last one was, we, we weren't trying to, even with Slang, it was like, let's be anti the last three albums. And um, and, and then, you know, obviously the, the album Euphoria, which was after Slang, was anti the album we just did before that. So 
I, I think it's the first time in, in our history that we would actually want to do an album like the last one or the, or the same approach where, where it's anything goes as long as you think that that fits in, in the format of Def Leppard. And, and that's where we are now. We've got all this, you know, almost 40 years of experience. And, uh, and like I said, you know, these, these great master teachers, Matt Lang, you know, Joe Cetriani put John Petrucci on a, on a different level and, and you, you constantly bring all this stuff in. And before you know it, you're like, whoa, this is, this is great. You know, you just have these, these amazing kind of, uh, examples and, and, and kind of influences that are just around you all the time. It's, it really is cool. Yeah, you've got that freedom. Now, I, I know you have to get going soon, so let me just finish on these. <clears throat> pardon me. Two things. Uh, the Def Leppard CD Collection 1 came out recently. I have it, of course. It is fantastic. It's got Good Morning Freedom. Does that mean at some point that we're going to have CD Collection 2? And if so, <clears throat> what does that look like? What's sort of sitting in the vaults that you're going to surprise us with there is a cd collection too um and we've already got that on the go there's 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 other stuff there's there's things that, that we forgot about and you go oh wow okay you remember that and you know when we put the slang you know deluxe, deluxe box, box in, there, yeah. there was like you know 28 30 songs or something and, and different versions of songs that we'd forgot about like you know um gift of flesh was called black train or something and it was like a completely different song with a different chorus and it had me singing the chorus and i'm like i don't remember any of that you know you you get so involved in stuff that you forget them I, my first gig with def leppard was at the marquee club in london and then um, joe someone gave him a bootleg once and we was listening to it it's like oh, this is your first show with us and then it said ladies and gentlemen from and this is Joe saying, ladies and gentlemen, from Thin Lizzy, Mr. Brian Robertson, and came on stage with us and done a song. And we, we both went, I completely forgot about that. I mean, so much happens and so much has happened that you forget. I mean, they, we love Thin Lizzy, one of our favorite bands, and Brian Robertson was awesome. The fact that we forgot that that actually happened was, was kind of weird. So what, all that in saying, you know, we, we have songs that you have different versions. You forgot you've done them. You have you know, four track Fostex things that are amazing versions of like songs from Hysteria that uh, it's us sitting around in a, in a, a front room in, in Dublin, you know, just trying to work this stuff out. And, you know, some of these songs with, you know, like love bites with different lyrics or you, you know, all, all of these things, you know, tear it down called something else. You try it, then you, you completely forget that you've done them. So we have a lot of stuff sitting around. Well, I can't. I can't wait to uh, to get it out. And so we'll we'll finish with this because, I, I, like I said, I know you have to get going. Um, I just spent three days with Troy from Tesla, taking him around Montreal. We had a nice chat about the album that you produced, and you know it's coming out soon, and all that's wonderful stuff. Just talk to me about you taking that role and sort of being the ears of a band like Tesla and sort of helping them shape their sound and. Is production something that interests you that you want to start doing a lot more? Or was this sort of a, a fun, I don't want to say sort of a hobby, but just sort of a, hey, why not? Let's do this for, you know. Um, well, I do it all the time. You know, I do it in Def Leppard. I do it with Man Rays and everything. And I, I learned so much from Matt Langer, who I, who I think is the best producer out there. Um just about songwriting and what's cool, what what you should, where you should be at this point in your career, where, whether this song works, how to how to make a, a heartfelt song 
how to bring tears to people's eyes and just stuff like that. So we, we went on a whole journey. You know, I'd, I'd done a song with them a couple of years ago, Save That Goodness, and, and everyone's like, well, that, that worked great. So I basically joined the band and, and they let me. i got to say that the, the guys had faith in me. You know, I, I went through the whole thing. I said, look, if I do this, I'm a hundred over a hundred percent involved. You know, I put everything into it. Like I tend to do. Um, so you've got to back me up on this. We, we everyone's got to work really hard and they did, you know, I've, I've never heard Jeff Keith sing so well. We, we added textures to the band, the band and, and the songs, you know, we wrote all the songs together and we made sure that they were amazing. And, you know, it's one of the best things I've ever done this, this album. Um, so we, we got together and, there was a concept and, and the concept was to write amazing songs. And, and it, it, you, if something wasn't that great, it wouldn't make the cut. It just wouldn't, we wouldn't finish the song off. If something had, had real kind of spirit and fire and, and just uh, amazing stuff to it, uh, then we would do it. We'd finish it off. And, and the influences on this album are incredible. You know, it's like, it goes from the Beatles to the Stones, Aerosmith, ACDC, you know, Queen, uh, little bits of Def Leppard, obviously, because, you know, I write, sing, play guitar in Def Leppard as well. So you're going to hear some of that. And and obviously very much Tesla. It's like Tesla on steroids. It's, it's just a, a a really cool thing and that, that we were able to do. And I, I, I really it was great that the guys had, had faith in me to, to kind of, you know, push that boat out, if you like, and, and actually... Uh, you know, attempt something that was that they wouldn't have normally done. Yeah, and, and I just look forward to it. And Phil, always, always a pleasure. I will come out and see the uh, what a day, August eleventh show at Fenway Park. I can't wait to see that. And uh, perfect, just, great. Just thank you so much. And hopefully, uh, I'll convince you between now and then to put all I want is everything in the set before then. So, <laughs> we'll <Okay>. see. <laughs> thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Now, take care. You too. Now, bye bye. Bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Big thank you to Phil Collin of Def Leppard, one of my favorite bands. And of course, Steve, one of your favorite bands. It's just such, wow, the history of Def Leppard is, is stellar, right? Um, yeah, the history is so stellar. And, and, you know, they're bigger, almost bigger now than they ever were. You know, this tour with Journey, they're doing things that they've never done. You know, last two weeks ago, I was with them at the Monumental, you know, them headlining Madison Square Garden for the first time in their career. You know, sold out shows, incredible. Now they're, you're going to see them at Fenway Park, sold out baseball stadium with Cheap Trick and Journey. I mean, I'm just so happy for these guys. You know, it just goes to show you that, hard work and Def Leppard is a band and I've said this before their band and their organization their crew management everybody all they care about is putting on the best show and and continuing to be the best that they could possibly be and the band just keeps getting better and better you know Joe's voice he's sounding better than he did 20 years ago I mean and I was there 20 years ago so I know what he sounds like he's singing phenomenal and it's just it's a really uh, it's a testament to the way those guys were raised is you know growing up with their families hard-working british kids and they still have that same mentality yeah they really do so speaking of a, a hard-working kid let's let's head over to the east coast of the united states i have uh, john karabi as my next guest they are of course heading out on the road here in North America with uh, Dizzy Reed's Hookers and Blow. So it's going to be a Dead Daisies Hookers and Blow 
Cobill, and uh, their new album is called Burn It Down. Now, you you mentioned, John, quickly before when uh, you did a photo shoot with Neil and he was with The Scream, but have you kept in contact with John? Do, do you, have you followed him around? What sort of... Tell me anything about... Yeah, I mean, we know, we run into each other every once in a while. I mean, the last time I hung with him was last year on the Monsters of Rock cruise. You know, but we're always doing festivals together. When Before, before he joined uh, Dead Daisies, you know, he was doing some acoustic stuff. But, you know, I've known John probably, you know, a long time you know 29 years almost i think we were 30 years the first time i ever met him he used to play in a cover band back in south jersey philly with johnny d snake sabo and john and you know and johnny were in the band and um you know so we you know just a lot of friends and and i couldn't you know like i said I met him before he was really anybody, and I was so happy when he got the Motley gig. And I'm such a big fan of that Motley record that he did with the Karabi record. I mean, the Hooligans Holiday, you know, still, you know, to me, I think it's one of the best Motley songs. I agree. You know, ever, it really is. You know, I think that record has some unbelievable stuff on it. You know, so tip my hat to John. He just, you know, brought a whole new element to the band. You know, I, I think he got a raw deal with that situation. But, you know, I think he knew that going in and especially with those guys, you never know what's going to happen, but, you know, look, it took him from, you know, being basically in a cover bands and a mid-level band. I love the scream record, but let's face it, they never hit it big. So he got a break like that. So he really took it as far as he could. And, uh, I'm just so happy for him now that he's in the dead daisies. Cause I toured with those guys on the kiss Def leopard tour in 2014 and hung with David and Marco. You know, I think those are the only original guys still in the band. I think Dizzy was on that tour as well, but I got to hang with those guys. I love what they do musically. And it's great to see all those guys, you know, Aldrich in the band now and Karabi. It's just, it's phenomenal. So I'm happy. And they're a true rock and roll band. So that's another, you know, positive, uh, positive, um, positive throw in the right direction, if you will. You know, I think the Dead Daisies are doing all the right things. Yeah, they really are. I mean, the o- the only complaint we can have with John is that he's a Philadelphia Eagles fan. But other than that, he's fantastic, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly agree with you on that. <laughs> on that. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to say? It's only. It's only- it's only football. Uh, let's remind the folks that you, are, of course, are on tour with Eric Martin, of course, of Mr. Big. And ericmartin.com is where you can find all the dates. You and I will be in Chicopee, Massachusetts on Friday, August 17th. And without further ado, let us get over to Dead Daisy singer, new album, Burn It Down. Here is the one, the only, as we say in Quebec, Jean Carobi, but you know him as John Karabi. We are speaking with Dead Daisies vocalist John Karabi. The new album, of course, is Burn It Down. In fact, that is the new fantastic album by the Dead Daisies. Uh, John, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, that album, Burn It Down, the best in the bunch, I would say, right? Well, I appreciate it. You know, and I, I would hope with each record we get a little better. But um, the, the, you know what's funny? This one is actually... Um, it's exceeded expectations. Let's just put it that way in the state of the music world. Um, this record is actually doing really well, um, obviously in sales and, but it's charted on a bunch of like heat seekers and indie rock and mainstream rock. And we've actually cracked American radio on their charts. Um, and then, but it's, it's kind of been the same all around the world in England, Japan, Germany, Spain, 
you know, everywhere. So, um, we're very pleased, um, you know, and, uh, onward and upward. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And what I'm noticing with, with burn it down is, you know, you look back at your career and you were the new guy in Motley Crue. And then, you know, you, you did some stuff real on the side with Brides of Destruction and you were the guitarist for a while, the touring guitarist with Rat. But this one here is with you and Dean, especially with you and Dean, it has become a band. I mean, the Dead Daisies are now a band. And that's what I think is what you bring to it. Are you getting that sense too, that it's not just a collection of guys, but now it has gelled into being, this is the Dead Daisies band? No, you know, honestly, I think, you know, at the same time, I think David's always wanted this. Um, you know, when I say David, I'm talking about Lowy or guitar player, um, you know, and, but it, again, they kind of did it in an ass backwards way. You know how the music industry goes, you know? So in most cases, you get a bunch of guys, they put a band together, they get into a garage and they just jam and then they start writing together. Um, they try to get the record deal. They get the record deal. They do the record. They go on tour. You know, by the time they go on tour, they've, they've been together for, you know, a few years in most cases. Um, with David, when he started this thing, he originally started it with John Stevens, an amazing singer from Australia. Um, uh, and, and they basically just those two guys, they got together, they wrote and recorded the whole first record. And then they put a band together, you know, they're like, Lord, let's go do some shows. They contacted Richard, they contacted Dizzy, and then they got Marco involved in the thing. They went through a couple of drummers trying to figure out which one. But if you really look at it because of John Stevens having been in, in excess and David Lowy was in a, a few bands in Australia that were very popular, maybe not as popular in America, but they were popular in Australia. So they kind of, in some way, they kind of grew up in public. So all those things, you know, that most bands, you know, normally uh wouldn't have out there you know they they would they would actually do their growing and, and you know changing members and figuring things out prior to getting a record deal these guys kind of did it the opposite way around and i think uh you know when i when i first joined in 15 it was richard dizzy they were still there uh Richard and Dizzy and Marco, that was their kind of third record with the band when I joined. That first one that I did was Revolution. They had done three. And, you know, not to be weird, but they would probably still be in the band had they not gotten the call to come back and do the Guns N' Roses thing. Um, you know, stuff happens. So enter Doug Aldridge. Now, Doug, this is the third record with Doug. Uh, fourth record with me. Um, and then again with Brian, you know, it's just at, at this point, Brian had been involved, I think, from, you know, Brian was in before me. So I think he just kind of, he just kind of got to the point where he wanted to do a solo record. Um, and I think he just wanted to kind of be closer to home, be a little more based out of California. You know, the thing is with the daisies, when we go out on tour, we're, we're probably, you know, for, for the most part, we're, we're usually when we 
start a tour, we're good for like seven, eight months. So Brian was like, I think I want to do a solo record. And then the, the, what he's doing now is his Bonzo bashes and the Randy Rhodes tributes. And then he's, he's doing filling gigs and he can just go home and hang out with his family, his wife and daughters, and he can just work on his solo record. And I think that's what he wanted. So um, I, I think now Dean's entered, he brings a positive attitude. He's a great drummer and he's got a, incredible singing voice so he strengthens and bolsters the backing vocals with marco and um everybody's getting along man so it's like knock on wood you know hopefully this is the lineup and i think david's even said it like this is the lineup you know i think we've finally gotten this thing to the point where we're we're uh this is it what you see is what you get and hopefully it'll be this way for many years to come. It's a great lineup, and the album is great. Now, now you did mention uh, Brian Tishy and maybe wanting to be home with the family. And, and recently we've been reading about Tommy Lee and his son. Um, talk to me a little bit about the challenges as a musician, because you have, of course, Ian, your son, playing on the One Night in Nashville. Um Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the challenges of being a father and a touring musician, because you have to make a choice of, do I want to be there for the dentist appointments and the school plays and the call from the principal, or do I or do I want to go make a living? And and it was difficult, I believe, for you for a while as well. Um, just talk to me about those choices and and what it was like from the scream to now and trying to be a dad and trying to be a singer and just just the whole sort of thing. You know, it, it's it's the weirdest thing because obviously I love what I do. And I think that this, not not to sound hokey or, you know, whatever word you want to fill in the blank with, but um, I love it. But this is, this is what I was put on earth to do. I don't, honestly, I don't know how to do anything else. Lord knows my wife just sits and laughs at me when I try to do like home repairs on stuff. You know what I mean? I can change like a toilet seat and a light bulb. So it's like, forget about it. This is what I do. But on the same, I wouldn't change it for anything, but at the same time, it has been hard. It's been really, really difficult. Um, like you were saying, being away from my son on his and my daughter, for their birthdays, uh, a lot of holidays, um, you know, and, and I had a, I had a bit of an incident with my son when he first moved to Nashville. Um, he, he was living in LA with his mom and he called me and we had a very long, shocking talk when he called me and told me that he had been addicted And he had been doing heroin for a year and he wanted to stop, which was a shock to me. Um, You know, so I I brought him out to Nashville. My wife and I now, Debbie, um, we kind of, you know, we got him situated, gave him a room. He crashed out for a few days. He, He totally did it. He got himself clean because he wanted to. Um, and then we had a little talk and he said, you know, dad, you haven't been around and, you know, and, and I had to, 
I totally understood it. It broke my heart to hear it, but I had to kind of put my foot down and also say, yeah, but this is what I do. This is the only thing I know how to do. And it's unfortunate. And I apologize. And nobody hated being away more on your birthdays and softball games and all this. Nobody hated it more than I did. But at the same time, those clothes that you were wearing and the bike that you were and the schools that you were in and the house that you were in, this is how I paid for it. And it's unfortunate and I apologize, but whatever I can do now to make it better, let's just, you know, and, and that was it, you know what I mean? And it, but it's, it's really hard, man. I've, I've been married. I'm on my third marriage. Um, you know, I have two kids that, that I know about, uh, <laughs> But, I have, um, so do I. I have two that I know about now. But yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, but it, it's been hard, man. It's 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 hard. You know, when you go out like now, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm married again. And, and, and it's funny. It's been difficult. And I can look now and I can go back in hindsight and I can understand how difficult, even for my ex-wives, um, how difficult it was with me being gone all the time. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a rough world. It's, it's, it, it's difficult. I I mean, but, but again, it's weird. Like it, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I was just laughing. I just told somebody, I just told somebody uh, a couple days ago, I was doing an interview and I said, you know, it's, it's, it's really weird. It's like this crazy cycle. I go on the road, and I'm good for about a couple weeks, three weeks. And, you know, you're constantly moving back and forth. You know, you're checking into hotels, checking out of hotels, going to the show, doing it, meet and greets, doing interviews, da, 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 you know, and then you do your thing. And then about three weeks, I'm like, God, I would pay. I would pay a ton of money to just go home and sleep in my bed next to my wife. You know, and then it finally comes, you get home, you relax for, and you settle back into that thing that, you know, husbands and wives do. They go out to dinner together. They watch movies together. They do, you know, and then it's weird. Like this clock goes off where it's like, okay, I've been home for a couple of weeks. When are we going back out again? And it's not, it's got nothing to do with your family. Like I, I got to get away from my family. It's just, it's this weird thing. Like, I feel like I should be doing something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I get it. You know, my kids are often, my kids are off in the summer and I, I will slow down the interviewing thing. And sometimes I won't do interviews for a week or two. And then you're just like, all right, I got to go interview. <laughs> like, I, I got to get back to, I can't just sort of sit here and, <clears throat> and, and watch paint dry. But, you know, you, you look at Doug Aldrich, who's of course in the band, he, and, and, and by the way, yeah. an amazing father. Yeah. Like I've never, I, I, I'll tell you this right now for the record and Doug will probably, he'll probably <clears throat> kick me for it. But you know, it's funny. Like I watch him and like all of the guys, it, now it's weird with the whole iPhone thing and all the smartphones. Doug is on the phone constantly with his wife and his two kids like his wife will literally go to a baseball game for his son Ryder 
and sit in a stand and she'll put them on like a FaceTime, like a video thing. And in between bats, like his son can come up there and it's just like, I my, you know, dad's watching me. You know what I mean? And it's just so brilliant. Like I really, you know, <clears throat> I really respect how Doug is with his family and Marco and Dean. Dean's Dean's son is out touring with a band right now. And, um, you know, same thing. They're constantly talking to each other, you know, videotaping, you know, videoing each other. I keep videos, uh, video conference calls, his wife or whatever you call it, video FaceTime. Video conferencing um, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so they can see each other and it's such a brilliant thing now for, you know, families. Like I wish they would have had that when I was in the screen. Yeah, it would have um, changed everything back in the day, but, but it would have changed everything. But it's it's just awesome. I didn't mean to interrupt your thought. I just had to interject. Like that's the one thing that I love about the guys in my band is like they're so, in their own way, they're all so dedicated to their families. It's 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 really it's really cool to right. see and, people that are you know what I mean. Yeah, and that's that's what I was going to get to is is that Doug stepped away from White Snake because he wanted to be. Uh, you know, out in Vegas, whatever, closer to the family. Ryan Roxy stepped away from Alice Cooper for many years to, to go to Sweden and raise his family. But getting back to you and Ian, here you are on this Live 94 one night in Nashville. What was it like for you to, after all this, you know, the talk and the, the heroin use and the, and the I was away, to sort of have it come full circle and have him be not enjoying your music, but part of the band and part of the process to create this album and create that tour. And what was that like to sort of say, okay, now we're here. And, and the, the, you know, what was that like for you? It was great. You know what I mean? And, 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 and the funny thing of is it, it is it, it's as strained as my relationship was with Ian, he had a little bit of uh, anger with me. But we've always had a great, it's, it's weird. It was strained, but it was a great relationship because I would call him, even when I was on the road, I'd call him like almost every day. Right now, he's on his way out to California um, to start something um, like, uh, he's obviously in my band, but my, my band's like been on kind of a hiatus because of uh, the day, daisies. So Ian's on his way to California right now to do something with Michael Grant. And, um, you know, and it's funny, like, you know, he's, he's texting me. Okay, dad, I'm leaving. Okay, cool. Yep. I'm in Arkansas. Uh, today, you know, and he texted me last night. He called me at like one in the morning. Hey, I'm tired. I'm pulling over. I'm, I'm in, uh, Oklahoma city, you know, and now and this morning I'm up, I'm driving, you know what I mean? And so we have it. We have that kind of a relationship where he, he will call me and tell me everything, you know, but it was awesome. Once he got himself all figured out, straightened out. Um, I basically told him I was, his, uh, you know, this was my dad moment. I said, I want you in my band. If you can play. And I slid the Motley record across the table and I go, listen to this record. And if you can play this record note for note, the way Tommy played the record, I go, the gig is yours to lose. And he looked at me and I said, now the, the reason why I'm saying the gig is yours to lose is because you want to smoke a little weed. That's fine. 
you want to have a beer with me or my buddies cocktail? I'm good with that. If I find out you've done anything other than that, even though you're my son and I love you, I will fire you immediately. And he's been as straight as an arrow since. You know what I mean? And and that's got to be that's also got to be nice for you, the fact that he respected the situation and you enough to not go dabble in anything else and say, okay, I'm going to take this seriously and we're gonna we're gonna do this, uh, you know. Um, t- just quickly, since since we mentioned Tommy Lee, and I'm not going to discuss his thing, but you know, well, I, I, on a side note, I do have to say whatever you're going to say. Yeah, I really hope that Tommy and Brandon can figure this out, but they're never going to figure it out. They're never going to get past this. If they don't stop airing their shit in public. Oh, that I agree with. I I think whatever Brandon did to Tommy, like if he knocked him out or whatever, and who knows how it started. Brandon says that his dad was drunk and pushed him. And Tommy said he just came in and they'll, you know, what? who knows? Who cares? Stop talking about it in public because every time Tommy does something, it fires Brandon back up. I've been following the whole thing. And even my wife is like, what is wrong with these guys? Like, and, and a lot of people are like, what is wrong with Tommy? Like, why is Tommy not taking the high road here and, and being like a dad and not saying anything, just keep it quiet, keep it to yourself, sort it out, go see a therapist, anything but airing it on Facebook and Instagram, both of them. Yeah. And, 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 and by the way, that rule should apply to many people. Cause I, I see on Facebook, a lot of husbands and wives going, you know, my wife did this and it's like, dude, you got to keep stuff in house. Like, you know, it's almost mafia style. You, you don't, you don't air that stuff, but I was just going to, tie it in because back on on generation swine he had the song brandon and we got from 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 this beautiful song on generation swine to to where we are now um but i I did want to ask you a little bit about your contributions on that album because it it, there is that infamous tale that this was going to be your second album with the band then finally they said the heck with it and brought vince back um what are sort of your recollections or memories of working on that album and, and Correct me if I'm wrong, but that became the imp- the impetus for 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 the for a lawsuit and stuff like that because you you wrote some stuff and then it didn't uh, sort of sort me out on on the on the generation swine story and your implications. Well, if if I may, correct me all the, all you need. No, 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 no. It's it, there's nothing to correct really. To be honest, you, you pretty much summed it up, but. The one thing that I have to say is as enjoyable and amazing of an experience the first record was, that's how much of it, it was, it was like, it was the complete polar opposite with what became Generation Swine. And there was obviously, you, you have to understand, like, my record was the first record that they had done. Now it went gold, but my record was the first record that they had done that didn't go platinum, didn't make some sort of crazy noise. And everybody panicked. And I think at that point, everybody, you know, all the managers and, you know, the 
the band fired Doug Thaler. They fired their accountants. They fired their lawyers. They fired, they fired everybody. And then at that point, we were going to start the next record. And instead of going back to Bob Rock, which I thought we should have done, I don't know why, but Tommy and Nikki thought that they would be able to produce the next record themselves, which I think was a massive, massive mistake. Only because, like, to, to me, the first record was obviously a disaster. We know this. It's common knowledge. So your next record, I think, is, it, it's like, this now is the most important record you're probably ever going to do. And they sat and they decided to do it themselves. And I, I just never understood that concept. And then to boot, I love Scott Humphrey to death. He's, he's a great guy. He's incredibly talented, but he honestly, he sat in between Tommy and Nikki and he was the guy that was trying to filter all of their ideas and move forward with them. And he had no control over any of them where Bob rock, when we worked with Bob, if Nikki was trying to maybe add a part or Tommy was trying to add something or, you know, Bob rock could come into the room and go, no, the song is done. That's it. We're putting it to bed. Forget about it. It let's move on. You know what I mean? They respected Bob rock and there, there was a bit of an intimidation factor there with Bob rock, which, Scott didn't have. Right. So there was no, there was no breaks on that thing at all, at all. And, you know, I, I just remember I, I was just miserable. And if I can say it, like nobody's truly understood what I was talking about, but there was a point where I loved being in that band. But at that point, that year or year and a half prior to them bringing Vince back, because we worked on Generation Swine for like two and a, two years, two and a half years um, before Vince even came back. Right. And I was sitting there trying to process everything and like, not to be weird, but I could have burped on tape for the first record. And it would have been like, oh my God, dude, that's the greatest burp I've ever heard in my life. That's amazing. And this record, I would, I would sing something and it was like, it's a little too bluesy. Well, newsflash, I'm a bluesy singer. Do you know what I mean? Like you knew this. Um, so then I'd have Nikki on one side interjecting, well, crab, you know, I, I love what you're doing, but it's not really what I'm hearing in my head. And this is what a producer does. This is not what I'm hearing in my head. I'm hearing something. And then he would give me like Manic Street Preachers, Sisters of Mercy meets David Bowie. And then Tommy would go, yeah, but heavy dude, like Pantera and, but lush, like melodic, like Oasis. And then Scott would go, or Cheap Trick. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, I had no concept of what they were talking about. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. you know, how do you go from Manic Street Preachers, Sisters of Mercy, and Bowie to 
cheap trick in Oasis with Pantera thrown. Like, I don't understand what you're saying. Where Bob Rock would, he would give me an exact, he would be way more pinpoint exact, like, here's what I'm talking about. And if I still didn't understand it, he would sing it to me. Oh, okay. Totally understand what you mean. Yes. Boom. And I would go in and do what I had to do. So I was kind of struggling. So by the time they came to me and said, we're bringing Vince back. I mean, I was honestly, I was losing my hair. (laughs) I was a nervous wreck. Like my stomach was just in a knot constantly because I felt like, um, I, I don't know what happened here, but I'm not giving them what they want. I, I don't understand this. Like, uh, I'm perplexed. So I was driving myself crazy. They were driving me crazy. So when they told me that Vince was coming back, I was devastated, but relieved at the same time. So, um, you know what I mean? It was, it was just, I was totally, totally relieved and, you know, but devastated at the same time. John, that that is a great, great story. And I know that you have another interview lined up right now. So we will have to, when you get to Montreal in August, continue this chant, do a part two. Uh, We will finish the the Motley Crue story. And as always, uh, a great, great pleasure to chat with you. Uh, Thank you, sir. You too, buddy. We've actually talked so much now, I have you on speed dial. (laughs) (laughs) And I like that. And of course, uh, Ottawa, Montreal, um, it'll be interesting to see snow in in that part of the world in August. Because whenever you come here, you bring not snow, you bring snow storms. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, so, so thanks for bringing that to uh, to August uh, for us. But uh, yeah, anyway, lo- I'm looking forward to it. And uh, there you go. Enjoy enjoy your next interview. Thank you, sir. We'll we'll talk soon. All right, buddy. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Rock Talk. And a big thank you to John Karabi for that great interview. And uh, Steve, let us move on to our last interview of the day it is the one the only bobby rock his new book is called the boy is gonna rock he talks a lot about vinnie vincent and you a few years ago you put out a million to one a vinnie vincent song as an acoustic cover just quickly talk to me about that what sort of motivated you or inspired you to take a guitar shredding thing and acousticize it for the lack of a better word well i just thought you know let's not do the obvious with such a great song and you know that was you know that was on um the lick it up album paul stanley and vincent cusano wrote that song and i always thought it was phenomenal and you know as we know as songwriters and players any to me any great song that's a rock song, if it's really that good, you can transpose it and change it to acoustic, and they'll still have kind of the same power. And uh, I was approached by my, my dear friend years ago, and God rest his soul, this guy CC Banana, who was a character in Jersey. He was a he was a kind of a big rock fan. He used to do interviews and stuff like that. And he wanted to do a Vinnie Vincent tribute record. And uh, I was like, well, if you're crazy enough to do a Vinnie Vincent tribute record called Kiss My Uncle because that was his, you know, Vinny's character in Kiss. I'm like, well, I'm crazy enough to do an acoustic version of this because, you know, how rabid the Kiss fans are and, you know, oh my God, it's so sacrilegious you did this to a Kiss song and, you know, and then the, the, you know, the comments and this and that, but it turned out to be a phenomenal, came out better than I expected and the response to it 
has been tremendous over the years. You know, Eddie Trunk used to play it on his show, and it would be the end ballad. He loved it, and you know, so the rest is history. And I'm I'm finally gonna do a remastered, remixed version of it that I, in the next couple of weeks I'm gonna have back up on iTunes. Oh, so uh, yeah, but that's it. And Bobby Rock, man, I know Bobby back when he was in Nelson. And I still see Bobby every once in a while when we play shows with Lita Ford. So Bobby's a phenomenal drummer and a great, great guy. Yeah, it truly is. So since you mentioned Nelson, you are going to be part of this Rockingham Festival over in the UK in October. And you're going to be on, a, on the bill with a Tokyo Motor Fist and Nelson. And on that same night, there's a, a Norwegian, Swedish slash band called Ammunition, which are smoking so let's let's give that a little love we talked about the eric martin dates but let's talk about this rockinghamlive.com the show in the uk with your band tokyo motor fist which the last album was absolutely phenomenal is there going to be a tokyo motor fist number two oh we're certainly talking about it um i'm always writing and uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the debut is phenomenal. The reviews have been great. We had such a great time making it. So, I mean, I love those guys, you know, Chuck, Greg and Ted are, you know, brothers of mine again, you know, just the guys that I've known for years. And finally we put a band together and the response has been great. And now we're getting the opportunity to finally take it out live. You know, yeah. and so that's going to be our first exclusive, you know, uh, Europe performance for 2018. And there is a chance that we might do a, you know, tri-state area, whether it's New York or New Jersey warm-up show beforehand, a couple of days before that, before we fly to fly to England. So we're putting that together. So we'll probably have to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. But it's going to be great. And it's a three-day festival. We've done it before with Trickster. The promoter guy, Rich, is a great guy. Puts does a top-notch. 200% job on the on taking care of the bands, the crowd. It's a it's a real festival. Dixon's headlining on the Friday night, and we got Warrant headlining on the Sunday night. So we're going to have a lot of friends out there from all around the world, and we are just really looking forward to it. Yeah, I can't wait. And and just uh, quickly on the Ted Poley front, I was over at the uh, Poison Cheap Trick show in Pennsylvania at the end of June. And I see this blonde-haired guy standing in the will-call line. You know, he's wait- waiting to get his tickets and his passes. And lo and behold, it was Ted Poley. So we struck up a conversation. I haven't seen Ted in person in God knows how many years, probably 20 years or so. So it was, it was nice to reconnect with him. And this Rockingham Live bill, or Rockingham is the, is the show, but RockinghamLive.com, uh, you've got these two great European bands on it, too, Pink Cream 69 and Pretty Maze that have had these 20-year careers North America just sort of shrugs their shoulders, but in Europe, they're they're as big as anybody else, and that's just going to be a great, great festival. And, and of course, you know, Ted. you got to love Ted, right? Oh, yeah, Ted, Ted, you know, he's the, again, another local guy. Ted grew up a couple, couple towns over from me, you know, in Ramsey, New Jersey, and, you know, again, you know, I was friends with Ted when Trickster and Danger Danger were coming up through the ranks before we both got signed. We'd hang out with each other at parties, and I used to go over to his apartment in Hackensack, New Jersey, and he'd play me the demos of all the Danger Danger stuff. So, yeah, here we are. And, you know, 2018, we're going to be making our live debut with uh, Tokyo Motor Fest. I can't wait. And, of course, for all trickster uh, information and all you know steve brown you can head over to facebook.com forward slash trickster rocks again that's facebook.com forward slash trickster rocks that'll keep you up to date right steve 
Oh, yeah, always. PJ's on. PJ takes care of that. So anything you need to know, whether it's the Eric Martin stuff and uh, any of the other things that we're doing, you know, whether it's Jim Brewer, whether it's Tokyo Motor Fist, and, you know, whenever, whenever we decide to play with Trickster again, you know, so uh, that, that's where to look. Good place to look. And uh, without further ado, here is uh, the one, the only drummer extraordinaire, a lot of extraordinaire on this show, uh, Bobby Rock. <laughs> we are speaking with Lita Ford, drummer of Bobby Rock. He has a new book called The Boy is Gonna Rock. You know, I've always appreciated your style and I think um, what you've put out there, especially on the Vinny days, fantastic stuff. Fantastic stuff. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate that. So I'm going to start with this. The book was initially going to come out in 2017, and I, I'm going to suggest that as a courtesy, uh, with Vinny coming back to the Atlanta Expo and Vinny sort of reemerging after all these years, you've held it off. Um, is that fair to say that it was sort of as a courtesy to just say, let him have his space, and then I'll fill the space that comes after? That's fair. You know, when I started working on the book about a year ago, I, I just figured we were never going to hear from Vinny again, you know, and at some point along the way, probably last summer when they first made the announcement about the Atlanta Expo, I'm like, holy shit, you got to be kidding me, man. What are the odds that when I finally sit down to write this book, Vinny's coming back out of, of uh, seclusion? And I knew we would have we would have different recollections of things. And I just didn't want there to be murky waters with people asking Vinny, oh, yeah, well, in Bobby Rock's new book, he says X, Y and Z. What do you think about that? I, I, I just felt like the guy. 20 years later, should be able just to come out, do his thing, talk about, you know, what he wants to talk about, have his recollections, the way he remembers them. And then after the fact, I could go in, I could actually button the book up in a full circle sort of way, uh, which, of course, all that's included in there. You know, the you know, what, what all went down in Atlanta and sort of like a re the reflective aftermath of all of that. So, uh, but yeah, I, I just felt like the guy deserved a clean slate after 20 years. So let, let's start with that then, just r real quick. What did you make of Vinny's reemergence and reappearance and an essentially very cleaned up image of somebody who's very gracious and very grateful and very uh, forthcoming? Uh, was it, was it, were you glad to see that he was back or were you like, Really, dude, after all these years, you're just going to uh, what did you take away from it? And, 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 and Robert Fleischman being there and, and just what was that like for you? Obviously, it was very surreal because it's, it's like, you know, someone essentially who, you know, it's almost like someone who passed away, who came back to life. And you're looking at my God, is that really you? I mean, it had that kind of a kind of a surreal quality about it, because, again, I, I never thought I'd see the guy again. So my basic takeaway was I was just thrilled to see him, thrilled to see him back in action over there. And, and my approach that particular weekend, because I was gigging with Lita Ford elsewhere that weekend. Uh, so I, you know, people were bombarding me with texts, and videos and this and that. And, you know, as you know, social media just blew up over this thing. So my thing was just I was just sort of like a, a passive observer to the whole thing. I didn't really try to judge too much underlying intentions or things that he said. I, I, I figured in that environment, everything was probably going to be a little heightened. You know, like uh, I, I think one of the first things he did was was have an interview with Eddie and how he referred to Gene and Paul and, and you know, just how magnanimous he was about his time in Kiss, you know, uh, that. I, again, that, that struck me as like a, a heightened. He's there at a Kiss Expo. He's glad to be back, and 
And so I, all the emotions, all the, the recollections, all the memories are going to are going to be heightened, including his words about Mark Slaughter in that same interview. You know, they were heightened. I felt like in the other direction. <laughs> so right out of the gate, I felt like, OK, we're going to you know, and there's uh, this is not a slam, I guess. I mean, it's just an observation that, you know, we're, we're going to see a heightened version of everything throughout the weekend. And, you know, I thought it was uh, I thought it was cool. It was great to see him. Robert Fleischman, I've been friendly with through the years. It was good to see those two guys uh, do that little impromptu jam that one night. And uh, so I, I, it, it was all positive on my end. So so after all these years, what compels you to write a book about the experience? Because you, you, you've written about uh, nutrition and health and exercise and, and, and all kinds of other topics. What sort of went off in the head where you say, OK, it's time to put this story down? Because when you look, when you talk to Mark Slaughter, He's been very diplomatic about the the experience. When you talk to Dana Strum, so you don't get a lot of quotes about about Vinny and about that experience. So what sort of compelled you to say, okay, now it's time to tell this story? What it was for me is, you know, as you alluded to, I, I've I've led kind of a double life through the years as both a drummer and a writer. So you know, I published my first book in '89. It was a drum method book. Um, and then probably from the mid nineties, I got interested in, in writing other genres, other, in other subjects and so forth. So through the years, I've written some books, I've co-authored some books, I've done some ghostwriting. It's been a craft that I've taken as seriously as my drumming. So in October of 2015, at the 30th anniversary of my, uh, infamous, you know, audition with, with Vanny and with the invasion, I say infamous cause it was something well publicized back then. You know, this kid from Houston who gets in a brown van and has all packs all his drums up and drives out for the audition and just the way it unfolded and how I got the gig and what was happening in my life at the time, et cetera. Uh, I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to do a little writing about this. I'd had a blog since 2007 where I'd post a lot of different stuff. I go, eh, I'll just write this thing and throw it out there. And so the first thing I noticed is just the reaction, just how how many hits it got, how many shares it got, you know, like. Oh shit! People really still care about this. So that was the first thing I, I re- recognized about it. And then, like a couple months later, I wrote extensively about recording the first record with the Invasion and and, and that infamous story of, of how all that went down, how arduous it was. The writer part of me saw a very compelling story in just in, in so many aspects of it. I mean, first of all, just the, the idea that yeah, this 22-year-old kid from Houston, Texas, would wind up in Hollywood with this colorful cast of characters um, at, at that time of music, you know, mid to late eighties. I mean, th- this is a time in hard rock that we will never see again. And we had never seen like that prior. So uh, I just felt like, you know, from a, from a drummer perspective, it's like, eh, you know, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Vinny gave me my start. Uh, but overall the invasion represents about, you know, probably less than 10% of my entire career. I don't really feel a need to go back and revisit those times from that perspective. But from a writer, a writer's perspective, there was like a treasure trove of shit to write about, man. And, and, and so I just saw a very compelling story in it and felt like it was a good opportunity to tell the story, uh, to maybe set the record straight on a lot of the misconceptions about the, the band and even Vinny. And, and it, again, the very complex cast of characters involved there. And maybe even most importantly, to sort of capture that era, because, again, man, those of us who were out there doing it in the 80s, you know, we grew up at the true heyday of hard rock, which is the 70s. 
And that was that that those years, that that slice of life in the industry, you know, is something that, again, we will we will never it's never coming back like it was there. And I thought it'd be good to have a, a sort of a clear headed recollection of it, because, you know, so many of the memoirs that are written from that time frame are from guys who enjoyed their their drink and drug. And uh, I went to rehab as a kid and I, I have this sort of freakish photographic recall of a lot of those events. And I thought I could bring a lot of uh, detail to the era as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because one of the reasons why I generally avoid uh, reading some of those books from, you know, from, from some of those guys is because I'm thinking they were so drunk and so stoned. And so, <laughs> right. Like, like I, I'm just reading uh, you know, fiction, but of course with you it's very different because I know you've been very, very health conscious over the years. And I do want to talk about the veganism and the animal rights and all that stuff as well. But here we are in 2018. The last album came out 30 years ago in 88, All Systems Go. Why do you think there's still an interest? Because, you know, when you look at Kiss or the Rolling Stones or the Who, you go, well, they've got 40 years of career. I get the interest. But you're really talking about, you know, two or three years of time, maybe four years of time in, in the grand scheme of things. Why, what was it about the Vinnie Vincent invasion and, and what you guys did and what you did that still has people talking 30 years later? Well, there's no question that a big part of it is, of course, Vinnie's kiss connection. You know, he was only in the band for a short period of time, as we know, but it was a you know, hugely pivotal time there in that Creatures Lick It Up era. And so I think people recognize Vinny's uh, importance, if you will, in the Kiss trajectory through the years, you know, in, in in that pivotal time where, you know, things were things were looking kind of bleak there for a hot second after Creatures. You know, they put out a great record. They still did the makeup thing and all that. But, you know, things weren't popping. You know, we, we know what was going on there. And then so to take the makeup off, to have this reinvention and to put it all on the shoulders of, uh, you know, songs that I know Vinny uh, brought to the table, uh, that, that, that's a huge thing. So it wasn't a long era, but it was a very important era. So I just, you know, Kiss fans, man, they're you know, they're like Star Trek fans. I mean, I mean uh, these motherfuckers, man, I, what I've noticed through the years is uh, they, they, even my role as drummer of that band, of someone who is an ex-guitarist for Kiss for a short period of time, I've always felt welcomed by the Kiss fans through the years on, on other things that I've done. And so I, I mentioned that just to speak to sort of the, the devotion that they seem to have to uh, all the people who've been involved in, in part of the extended Kiss family, like Vinny and, and the rest of us. So that's that's probably where a lot of it is is rooted. Beyond that, you know, the Vinny Mitz invasion at whatever we did, three, four hundred thousand records. I mean, it was what I describe it as a moderately successful band. Uh, what I've noticed is that the, the people who liked those records and liked that band loved those records and loved the band and. You know why? Who knows? I mean, I think there were some. I think Vinny wrote some great, some great songs on both those albums. Um, uh, for as many people who were put off by the over-the-top nature of the visuals and the, the hardcore glam shit we were doing and all that, uh, there were many who liked the the outrageousness, the over-the-topness, if you will, about the band. And 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 again, just the nostalgia. I think people who had that car at 16 years old in the, in the cassette tape, going back and forth to school or whatever. It, that, that's that's you know I mean just like you and I could tell stories about that bands that we grew up with yep maybe even lesser known bands that that was that's like the 
I know it sounds kind of hokey to say, but like, you know, the soundtrack of, of your life. Oh, it you gets know, ingrained. Time, you know, Ingrained, ingrained totally exactly ingrained right. i mean i just and i don't mean to cut you off but but no, no. when when i look at poison look what the cat dragged in uh a lot of people even the band sometimes say it's not their best but that one that was me that that was the back mm-hmm. and forth to the school and that was back and forth yep. in the car and that tape you know i got it for like 5.99 on sale <laughs> and it, it just you can't argue with that people can tell me well and ricky and this and 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 cc and the it's like no 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 it it touched a chord that's beyond yes. just the music on the tape right so and and i get no I get, question I, I get that with with vinnie vincent's in, invasion so you you know he there is that kiss connection and his time with kiss how much did he reveal to you at the time about that did he come in and say gene and paul are such boo or did he say hey man i you know this is not how gene would what was he somewhat diplomatic was did he ignore it completely was he completely like these guys were awful to me and did he ever share any kiss stories with you or or anything oh yes (laughs) and uh you know, again, remember that it, it was fresh then. He, he was he was fresh off of the scene, off of the, the Kiss gig, and you know the prevailing feeling that I, I, I felt like he was uh, that he was conveying back then is that he, he felt really held back by that situation. He felt edited by that situation. He felt like they were trying to tell him how to play, um, et cetera, et cetera. So. Well, I wouldn't describe it as animosity per se. I don't think he uh, hated the guys, or anything. I don't think I don't think it was like a huge fallout in that sense. It, it wasn't pretty back then, and nor was it on their side either. You know, I, I think it was a you know it was it was a little bit of a fallout. And Vinny wasn't bashful about saying this is the real me. The, the guys try to hold me back and this kind of thing. And, and of course, Vinny would tell stories about how he'd be you know playing a, in the middle of his guitar solo and. They would come rushing on the stage while it was still going on. Ladies and gentlemen, Vinnie Mezza, as if they were trying to cut him off with the implication being that they didn't want him to upstage them. I mean, that's that was his perception of it back then. We would, I think, be able to, a little bit later to understand more about Paul and Gene's reason for you know, walking on stage on the eight to ten minute mark of an open guitar solo during the middle of a show. Uh, but I think so. I think th- this was a lot of what was going through his mind right then. I think he had something to prove. And I think he felt like this was his platform to step forward and, and be the real Vinnie Vincent. His songs, the way he wanted to record them, the way he wanted them produced, with the way playing guitar the way he wanted to play, and all of the different things that he felt like, uh, again, was, was edited and uh, affected by the, the, the Paul and Gene thing. I, I want to ask you quickly before we explore the albums in, in depth, uh, Dana Strum. And I've right. known Dana for years. He's always been absolutely wonderful to me. Uh, how essential was he to the Vinnie Vincent invasion? Because, you know, he's he, he fans will see him as just the bass player in Vince Neil's solo band or in this. But he's always been this behind the scenes guy. He he helped Ozzy Osbourne get Randy Rhodes. He's when you talk business with Slaughter, he's in charge of everything. When he does that, he's always been this. How important was he to get the wheels rolling? Did he have any say, for example, in picking you for the band? He 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 did in that he was the guy I called. You know, he he had produced a band called Sweet Savage that was on a, on a club circuit 
that I was on. So I, I was friendly with the Sweet Savage guys because we were all playing the same clubs and all that. And, and the singer, Joey C. Jones, was one of the first guys I called when I decided to head west to L.A. to try to have a, a, a go at it because the, the, the band I was in was going to always, I felt, be stuck playing clubs. So he said, oh, you, got, you should call this guy Dana Strum. He just produced our new EP. Plus, he's working with Vinnie Vincent right now, and I think they have everyone in place but a drummer. Give Dana a call. So I basically cold called Dana, left a message on his answer machine. And, I, you know, again, I'm just a kid from Texas. And, and granted, I did have the referral, if you will. I was able to say, hey, Joey C. Jones told me to call you. But he didn't know anything about me. He never heard me, never seen me. And just, be, you know, uh, because he understood that, you know, talented guys can be anywhere around the country, not just L.A. and New York, you know. So he was... He, he was really the one to, to push it through. And as a matter of fact, as folklore would have it, he was actually at a, a there was a, a restaurant, a hamburger hamlet right next to Chrysalis Records off of Sunset. He and Vinny were having lunch the very moment that Dana gets up and goes and checks his answer machine from the payphone. If you remember all that technology back then, you know, and so he hears my long winded message about how, you know, get, I'm Bobby Rock from Houston, blah, blah, blah. Give me a shot. I'll come out there and blow you guys away. And this sort of rambling verbose message I left, he goes back to the table with Vinny and jokingly says, Hey, I just, we just, I just found our new drummer, this kid from Houston named Bobby Rock. He wants to come out to audition. And Vinny's response was fuck him. I mean, that, that was Benny's first reaction. And Dana was like, nah, you know what? Just give the guy a shot, man. You never know. He could be a good player. And, and if he comes out and sucks, he'll have to drive all the way home without getting the gig. It'd be kind of fun. They kind of joked about it. But he was, Dana was kind of adamant about, hey, you know what? Give the kid a shot. So he was my point person. He was the guy I was in touch with over the next six weeks. And inevitably, he was the one really responsible for seeing, you know, that, that part of it through. Now, beyond that, I mean, there, it would be impossible to overstate Dana's role in the invasion. I mean, this guy was involved in every single aspect of the day-to-day -day business of the band. Um, it, it's part of his nature. It's part of how he thinks. He's a very hands-on kind of guy, as you mentioned with, with Vince Neil and Slaughter. I mean, he is the guy behind the curtain pulling all those strings. And the invasion was no exception to that. Uh, you know, our manager was New York-based. The band was L.A.-based. So that gave, and of course, our manager, George Suet, obviously had a lot to do with things. He helped Vinny procure the deal with Chrysalis. Uh, but man, the, the, the main visual I have of Dana Strum back then is just him being on the phone all the time, in the studio, in rehearsal, at a truck stop payphone. I mean, this guy was dealing with management. He was dealing with the label. He was dealing with our publicists. He was dealing with our endorsement companies. He actually negotiated my first drum and cymbal endorsement. Uh, I mean, this guy was like all over the place. And most importantly, for the those very particular, very specialized dynamics of the band, it was actually Dana Strum, in my opinion, who held it all together because he knew how to, and I hate to use the old Hollywood word, handle, you know, but he knew how to handle Vinny. He understood that Things could be volatile at times if, if, if Vinny had a certain kind of involvement with you know, certain kind of transactions or certain business things. If Vinny was involved with certain decisions, maybe it wouldn't be in the best interest because Vinny could sometimes be emotional or erratic with how he proceeded in, in business matters. I, I, you know, many creative people are. 
So he knew how to, I, the way I described in the book is he was kind of like a, a KGB operative. You know, he was very covert about how he handled things, what he told Vinny, what he didn't tell Vinny, all of that. So, so for those three years, I believe the reason it worked, the reason Vinny Vincent Invasion functioned as a professional rock band, completing and releasing two albums, uh, uh, you know, doing those three videos, doing all the touring we did, doing all the photo sessions we did, all of that, I believe, was because you had Dana Strum behind the scenes uh, pulling all the right strings. He's way more than just a bass player. That's for damn sure. Yeah, and and it, it describes Dana still to this day in 2018. I was just out with him at, at M3. And as you talk to him, it's like, oh, hold on, I got to get this call. And oh, hold on, I got to yes. get this call. And while he's dealing with the slaughter stuff at M3, he's getting a phone call about booking Vince Neil at a festival and booking the, the hotels for this. Thing. I mean, he's he's just yes. he is he's the captain of every ship that he's on. He's the captain of the Vince ship. He's he was the captain of the of the slaughter ship and the, the Vinnie Vincent ship. Um Right. Yeah, he he's 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 you know really something really unique and special with with Dana. You gotta love the guy. I mean, absolutely, absolutely, love absolutely. And and the other thing to kind of notice is that I, I think his specialty is in dealing with with guys um, who, let's just say, with with without that kind of guidance, without the proper management, without somebody really tending to all of those details might otherwise spin out of control, you know, and, and, you know, so I would say like with Vinny or like with Vince Neal, I mean, obviously not so much with Mark Slaughter, who's very level-headed, but with, with these guys, and I don't mean this as, as a criticism towards Vinny or Vince Neal, but it's just that these are the kind of guys who you can imagine, you know, ha, ha, would maybe have their own way of doing things, you know, and, and, and anybody who's really creative like that, you take a Vince Neal guy who I, I get the impression he just really wants to just show up sing do his thing and get the fuck out you know so with someone like dana at the helm he doesn't have to you know dig into the minutiae of all the details he has someone like dana who i would imagine is probably very strategic with vince and how he deals with them and there now here we are 10 years later that 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 thing vince keeps getting bigger and bigger in terms of what he's able to get every year and, and how well the business of vince neal continues to uh, to go and it was no exception with vinnie yeah, and that's in great part to uh, to uh, to Dana. And here's the other thing I notice about him with Vince Neal is Dana will show up to the venue, you know, three, four, five hours ahead of time and suss out the place and make sure yes. that the promoter is going to pay and that everything is the way. And he, he will call Vince and say, "Don't show up if he does," you know. And, and I've seen it happen right. in, in Vermont and stuff. And and anyway, yes, um, you yes. did mention George Sewitt, and I didn't have any George Sewitt questions planned, but I know George, of course, managed Ace Frehley and Peter Chris during the Kiss reunion tours, and many on the inside fault him for the tours falling apart. Uh, talk to me a little bit about George and sort of his managerial style and. What was it like working for him? And, 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 you know, did you have any good thoughts about him? Or was he sort of, when people say, eh, the Kiss reunion fell apart, blame George. Is there some sort of truth to that? Well, I, I obviously can't speak to the, of course. the, 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 of course. the Kiss reunion stuff because uh, I don't really know the details there. With the VDI thing, you know, there, there were a lot of fingers pointed at George, but fingers were pointing everywhere. And this is what happens when a band doesn't do what the expectation 
of the band was, you know, so when the band doesn't live up to it. So, you know, everybody thought that first VVI record was going to be a platinum selling album. That was the expectation of Chrysalis. This was the hype. This was the buzz. And it, the record didn't do that. Now, we can analyze maybe why in retrospect, oh, here's why, or maybe this was the problem, or we should have done this instead of that. But at the time, you know, from us band guys, we were looking at, you know, our manager and our label as the primary culprits. Meanwhile, manager and label was looking back at the band as the primary culprit for the thing, you know. So, but with regard to George, I mean, you know, most people are probably where he was actually a tour manager, in the first of all, in the business. So he managed Billy Idol. He managed Kiss, or I'm sorry, tour managed Billy Idol, tour managed Kiss, and that's where he met Vinny. And then the way that the, I believe Vinny was probably his first management client. And the way that came about is because you know George had a relationship with the folks at Chrysalis with his Billy Idol connection, thought that might be a great label for Vinny, uh, and, and essentially jumped on board and said, look, let me let me take this thing to Chrysalis. I bet I can get you a deal. And sure enough, he did. So now. They, that, that was what I believe was the early stages of them cementing their business relationship together. So I always liked George. I thought he had a good sense of things about him. Uh, in retrospect, maybe there was some inexperience there because this was his first rodeo, so to speak, in terms of managing a band full on as opposed to tour managing. Uh, I thought he made all the right moves. Uh, he, there, there was there was thought put behind Chrysalis as a label who he had as an agent. He made some different choices, some unexpected choices, but he was, he had his justifications for doing so. And it, but beyond that, it's almost impossible for me to give you a a really clear answer because Dana Strum was so heavily involved with so many things. So it was hard to know, you know, how much George knew that Dana was doing, how much that they were kind of quote unquote, you know, Dana was like co-managing the thing. Dana's involvement. I mean, there's, it's, that's a very complex thing. In fact, I even have a section in one of the chapters of the book where I where I call it. Uh, it's called "All the King's Men: Understanding the VVI Power Matrix," meaning that he, these were all the players, and here's what everybody did, and, and this is why it, became, it was such a, a complex thing in retrospect to, to figure out you know, who had the control, who had the power, who was pulling the strings. So it's a it, it's a, it's a complex. It was a complex situation for sure. Yeah, it really was, and and just uh, to let listeners know, it, the the audio went, went in and out there. I don't know if, if if you were moving around or not, but it got a little choppy at, at points. But uh, we, oh, sorry, no no worries. But uh, so let, let me let, let me get back here then to the two albums because uh, and well, okay, let me let me put it this way: looking back, because if the record company is blaming the band and the band's blaming the record company and and so on and so forth. How do you look at the first VVI? What I mean, musically, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but but I think it could have been tightened up in the sense that some of the solos were just a little too much. They were they were they weren't playing for the song. They were a little overblown. And had we had had a producer sort of tightened it up a bit and made it more a song, I think it would have been better. I think sometimes the vocals were pushed a little too far. Maybe had they. That's my opinion, rightly or wrongly. Right. Uh, how do you look at it now? Do Do you think the band should have had more direction, and 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 the producer should have dialed some stuff back, and maybe said to Vinny, "Hey, shh, we don't need that," you know? Or is the album, or the uh, is the album perfect? How do you look back on it now, with you know, thirty year old or thirty two year old, I guess, since it was eighty six right. years? Right. 
I think you're spot on. And of course, the disclaimer is, you know, every football fan is an expert come Monday morning. You know, oh, absolutely. Because we, 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 can, we can look back and say, oh, we should have done more of this, less of this, all that. I, you know, I, I think, well, first of all, we know that Vinny and Dana were the producers of the first record. And, you know, Dana had limited control, if you will, because ultimately he would have to defer to to Vinny on things. So if if, if Vinny if Dana was inclined to have something turn out differently or be mixed differently or whatever, Vinny could simply override him. And, and, and so that that's the kind of thing that was going on on the first record. Could which, we have benefited? Which, from- by the way, is why I've always said bands should never produce themselves, and, and, and I right. strongly believe it, that. It, it's tricky. It, it, it takes a rare animal to be able to do that. Now, I think, speaking of Dana, he, he's the type of guy that can pull it off if, if you give him the full reins, as we saw with the first Slaughter record. Uh, so, uh, But yes, somebody who's very artist-driven, like Vinnie Vincent, I think will do better to have another cook in the kitchen with him who, who can override him, quite frankly. And I, I feel like I guess if I had to try to encapsulate my feeling of the first record and uh, what what would have made all the difference is, is, well, first, understand that we were limited as to how deep into the record we could go in terms of singles and videos and all that because of the Robert Fleischman situation. So, you know, Robert sings on the record a month after the album comes out. He bails. We get Mark Slaughter in and we do the boys are going to rock video. Nobody thought to negotiate permission from Robert Fleischman to have Mark Slaughter lip syncing to his vocal tracks. So as soon as the thing comes out, you know, uh, Robert, of course, comes forth with a, with a, uh, with an issue with the thing and, 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 a, and a settlement. And so Crystal's had to pay up the ass and rightfully so. They didn't even talk to the guy about letting Mark's do or, you know, any kind of uh, licensing or whatever you want to call it to be able to use those. So point is, we could not do a second video which means we couldn't really go deeper into the record because back then, you know, it wasn't a real release. It wasn't a real single unless there was an accompanying video on MTV. So that was one of that. That was one thing that prevented us from going deeper. But beyond that, I, I would hear that there were issues with radio wanting to play it with all those chainsaw guitars and even like the vocals, uh, the things that you just said, were, that was exactly some of the feedback we were getting from radio back then. And uh, beyond that, you know, I, I think the the, you know, if I could if I could have had the crystal ball back then, and if we could have reassessed the the general concept, it's it's kind of like this. You know, the 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 Vinny Vincent invasion. You know, like Vinny's vision for the thing, his songs, his playing, the way it was out of the gate organically for him. Like that, like the like if you heard the three song demo that actually got him the deal, that was the shit. You know, just the, the way. Now, of course, they, they sounded like very well produced demos, so they needed to be re-recorded. But just where his guitars sat in the mix, the way the way he approached soloing on those demos, there was more space. There's more of like his Jeff Beck bluesy type thing he was doing, intermingled with the Randy Rhodes, uh, you know, Van Halen kind of shredding shit that he would do. Of course, he has his own brand of shredding, as we know. But it, it, it was it was like this, the solos breathed a lot more. It, it just it was fucking epic when you heard that. That's why you got to deal off of the three song cassette, man. I mean, that, that, that's why it was it was really something else. And also in terms of his quote unquote branding, you know, people knew Vinnie Vincent from the Lick It Up era as, you know, those guys, everything that happened before 85 was what I would call sort of like the generic 
hard rocker look, you know, like, uh, you know, what Def Leppard or Whitesnake, the way they would dress, the way they would look. That's kind of what Kiss was doing in, during the Look It Up era. If he would have stayed the course with that, you know, there was no need to jump off the deep end with like this poison shit at the time, the heavy duty glam thing. I think a lot of this stuff backfired, you know, because we were trying to do this record that was this credible arena rock album with this, you know, virtuoso guitar playing and all of this. But then we, we juxtaposed that with, uh, this this glam thing that was more like Motley Crue or Poison kind of a vibe, and I just think those worlds didn't really coexist so well. So if you know, again, if 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 you know, if if there would have been a little more moderation, uh, and I, moderation is not a good word, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, here's the best way to describe right. it. It's like I once upon a time I had a lady friend who, I mean, this woman, you know, she was beautiful, intelligent, fun to be around. We would hang out together. And it, it was a it was a fantastic hang. But then whenever some of my friends would come around, she would I kick into this sort of over animated. Hey, look how witty I am. And it was very awkward. And and I would sit back and I would, I would just want to say, you know, you really don't have to do that. You're you're fine just as you are. Everybody's going to love you just as you are. But of course, she didn't really know that. So she would go out of her way to present this extremely over animated, over the top version of herself and kind of a bizarre metaphor, I guess. But what I'm saying is we didn't have to do all that other shit. Then he didn't have to crank his guitars that loud. You could hear him just fine. He didn't have to shred 90 miles an hour through every solo back then. I mean, people knew he could play. There were opportunities in the solo for them to hear that. But it was like he felt you know, compelled to basically say, I'm going to crank this shit up. No matter where somebody drops the needle on the wax, they're going to hear you know, this, this crazy shredding. And I, I don't know, I, I don't want to imply it was necessarily an insecurity thing. I'm just saying that everything was pushed over the top in a way that it became a detriment to the overall presentation of the thing. Oh, I so agree. Yeah, yeah. Because, I, I mean, you look back at, at rock radio back then, and I'm not going to call, call myself an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but when you look at what Poison was doing, when you look at Bon Jovi was doing, when you look at some of those hard rock bands and even the pop stuff, I don't want to say it was simple, but there wasn't these muso, technical, shreddy things that were going on. It was just very, you know, simple beats and, and, you know, three chords, Brian Adams and stuff like that. And then Vinny came in and I could see a programmer sitting in Dallas or in Chicago going, I don't know where to put this. I just I don't know where to put this. Especially at that extreme, because you know there were you know you listen to like a Dokken record and you could hear George Lynch on there and the and the Ozzy Randy Rhodes I mean, there, there were you know of course Van Halen I mean there there were places where there'd be glimpses of that where a guy could stretch out and and do some of that serious shred type shit but as you say it was in the context of good old rock and roll great songs presented in, in a particular way and as soon as you start leaning on the guitars and making every solo be a particular way and all that I think you're absolutely right I think it kind of became this anomaly where they is like what do we do with this. You know, yeah. So, so talk to me about this Robert Fleischman because, uh, you know, I, 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 we, we all know the story of that Mark did the lip syncing and it was blah blah blah. But why would Chrysalis have to license it? I mean, they own the work, and if if the video was with a performer in it like Mark was so, uh, you know, illegal for the lack of a better word, could they not have just made a, a cartoon video or? or some kind of other presentation without the actual band or without Mark or, you know, scenes of whatever girls at a beach. I mean, why, why did he have that right 
to sort of shut down video production by saying you have to license me. That 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 seems strange to me. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know the legalities of it. I, I, I think this, you know, use of name and likeness and this kind of thing, I think there's a proprietary aspect of it uh, where it, if you're going to, especially that blatantly, if somebody's going to go on and lip sync to somebody's other parts without having signed a waiver, because remember, I don't think there was any kind of paperwork on Robert. And, and that was one of the other tricky things about it. The, the, the story that I heard after the fact was that George had given Chrysalis the impression that he had us all in his back pocket through these various contracts that, that were signed, but they actually weren't. Robert never signed anything. So I don't know if, if there lied the legal loophole. Perhaps if he would have signed a particular document, Chrysalis wouldn't have thought twice about it. I don't know all of the details about gotcha. it. But, but so I know that there was some kind of legal thing. As to the other aspect, sure, uh, you know, to do a video where it didn't show the guy's Mark singing or something like that, that could have been done. But for whatever reason, I don't recall that ever being part of the conversation back then. You know, like, I guess because it was just, you know, in, in 86, 87, it was just such a convention back then to have the band, you know, have the singer singing. I mean, it was, it, it was there were there were few videos out there where you didn't actually see the guys in the band behind their instruments and especially the lead singer singing the lyrics. Um, I know one thing that was talked about was recutting vocals on a song. So it was actually Mark Slaughter's voice and uh, have everything else the same, but basically let him sing to his own voice in a video. But then they were like, yeah, but you know what? Now that's not the, now we're promoting another track. That's not actually on the album, technically speaking, because there's a different, it's a different vocal track. Right. So that was, so who knows? I mean, uh, Look, it, it right could on. simply be a matter of chrysalis feeling like, you know what, man, we we're, we're gonna we're gonna cut our losses here and put our focus on the next record. We don't want to go too. I mean, they they released no substitute as sort of like this token single once we hit the Iron Maiden tour, but you know there was never a video for it, and so we got the impression that it was just sort of a half-hearted attempt. That was our impression. Now maybe they maybe they just had trouble getting traction at radio on both accounts of boys are going to rock and no substitute and decided to kind of throw the towel in on the whole thing. You know, that's very possible. It's very possible. So, so, so now talk to me from, from your experience or, or your point of view when Robert left, what, what were those discussions? First of all, did you see VVI as a band or did you realize that you were four or three guys sort of hired to support Vinny? How did you sort of, first of all, see it? And then when the news came down that we're going to get rid of Robert, um, how did you react to it personally? Well, I, I think early on, out of the gate, I mean, we all knew this was Venny's deal. These were Venny's songs. It was Venny's notoriety from Kiss that was sort of, uh, uh, you know, pu pushing the thing through. Uh, however, I, you know, it, it was made clear to me early on that you know this is that Vinny wanted to present this as a band vibe. You know, all, all most of the photos that were taken were all group shots. Uh, so even early on, and, and Vinny would talk about his new drummer, and, 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 and just he was very inclusive in the interviews about how proud he was of his band, how great everybody was on all the initial interviews. So that was kind of the impression that I got, that it was a band vibe. Now, having said that, I noticed that, that during the making of the, the first record, I, I didn't see much of Robert around. I mean, I, I met Robert at the audition. We had a really cool initial connection. He's a likable guy. He was very warm to me at the audition. Um, and I, I had a couple conversations with him on the phone afterwards. But once we got into working on the record, I, I just didn't see him. He, he wasn't coming around much. And as a matter of fact, 
I would I would overhear conversations that that Vinny would have on the phone with Robert or that Vinny would have with Dana about how he was frustrated. Uh, and, and it seemed like there was some some something brewing, you know, like either Robert didn't want to fully jump on board or Robert didn't want to tour or there there was something going on. So I, so I knew there was a little bit of, you know, flies in the proverbial ointment here uh, out of the gate. And when it became most evident was when we actually got together to do that first photo session. So this is one of the few times that the four of us were in a room together. And it was then that I really saw the different, how, how Robert was kind of cut from a different cloth, philosophically speaking, especially with regard to this, this, you know, quote unquote drag queen image thing that was going on. He was always opposed to it. He didn't want to, you know, if you, if you look at the back of that first album cover, that says it all. He just, he wore something very kind of plain and black and it's hard to even get eyeliner on the guy, you know? And, uh, and so just, there was, there was a certain amount of conflict at that session. There was some rumblings about this contract that Robert still hadn't signed. So it, it wasn't a pretty picture. I knew there were issues, but I was also kind of back and forth between Houston. I was still basically living at my parents' house, don't forget. And then, you know, to LA, I'd come back to LA to do band business photos and this kind of thing. So uh, the way the news hit me is, you know, the record's out there, it's three or four weeks in, there's a tremendous buzz about the thing. And I just, one afternoon, I got a call from Strum. And as, as I joke about in the book, you know, Afternoon calls from Dana were never a good sign because usually we would talk late at night at the end of his workday after midnight West Coast time or whatever. So whenever he'd call during the day, he'd be like, oh, shit, what happened? He basically dropped the bomb on me, said that Robert has decided not to move forward. He's not involved anymore. We have to try to find a singer. And, you know, actually, it was pretty devastating in that moment because, I mean, this is like the lead singer. This is the voice of the record. And, 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 the, and the guy bailed. So, I mean, yes, it's Benny's, it's Benny's trip and, and Benny's the focal point of it, but that was, it was pretty devastating, man. So in the end, two, three weeks later, when we decided on Mark Slaughter, he really saved our asses in retrospect. He, it was a pretty seamless transition. Uh, you know, don't forget, it, it wasn't just anybody that could sing Robert's parts on that record either, man. I mean, the, the, his vocal performance on that record was astounding in all the notes and all the all the all the shit you have to hit to replicate that and you know of course mark came in he's a great guy he looked good great front man all those things so it was it was from that point forward it was pretty seamless so those those few weeks of confusion and, and devastation were quickly set aside <laughs> once once mark came on board you know why do you think in 2018 uh Vinny gives some interviews and he takes some, let's call them shots, I guess, for the lack of a better word, at Mark. I mean, you know, Mark Mark presented a great face. The girls at the time really liked him. The second album, of course, great stuff. And yet, why why do you think there was this, you know, these comments from Vinny recently that mm, Mark was not good enough or not the guy? I think that there is certainly a kernel of truth in that from Vinny's perspective in that, you know, Mark was not Vinny's first choice when it came time to replace Robert. Uh, and I think one of the main reasons is because, you know, Robert had 10 years of in the trenches experience on Mark, you know, market, or rather uh, Robert had done that journey thing. He, he was a seasoned pro who had done all kinds of stuff. And you could really hear that seasoning and that experience in his voice. I mean, he was a world-class vocalist, and 
And so, uh, meanwhile, Mark is 21 years old, and while he had those crazy, you know, pipes of steel, and he was able to hit all the notes and do all of that, there, there was, there would, there would be a little bit of growing pains, uh, let's say. That that is a, it's the kind of thing that like most audiences wouldn't notice. Uh, subtle differences that a seasoned guy, the way they're going to sing, uh, versus versus somebody who, who's still sort of getting their chops together. But I think that was something that, that was very apparent to Vinny. So I remember the first few months on the road, because remember, our first performances, the first time we ever got on the stage together was on the Alice Cooper tour. We, we never had the benefit of playing clubs, ironing things out, finding our vibe, finding our onstage rapport uh, with one another, let alone the audience. As a matter of fact, the Boys Are Gonna Rock video was the first time the Vinny Vincent Invasion ever performed anywhere played anywhere together we hadn't even rehearsed at that point so what you are seeing is 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 vvi's first time as a band together on stage and the first time mark slaughter ever performed solely as a front man because prior to that he always played guitar and sang so this was the first time he jumped on a stage just holding a mic so that's uh, i would say he he had he was a natural <laughs> for sure but I, I mentioned this to say that you know when we got out on the alice tour Whatever kind of growing pains we had to deal with, whatever kind of experience Mark needed to pick up and fast, that's where it was going on. It was happening in front of, you know, the, these, uh, you know, in front of thousands of people every night, basically. So there was a lot of friction during the Cooper tour. Vinny very infamously would pull Mark aside, and and he had no bones about telling him he was unhappy about certain things and he needed to get his shit together. And he, in his very undiplomatic way of letting Mark know that he he needed to up his game and quickly. Uh, but that by the time we got to the Maiden tour in February, what January of of '87, I think we Mark found his groove. He he uh, he took the initial criticisms and, and used that with sort of a warrior mentality to oh yeah motherfucker I'll show you kind of thing. And that's exactly what he did. So by the time we got through the tour and the the, the total experience through All Systems Go, we never had. It, it seemed like a non-issue moving forward. We we didn't have any indication that Vinny was still unhappy with Mark. He never said anything about it. There was never any uh, talk of getting somebody else or, or anything like that. So from that perspective, it was a little bit like a, a bomb dropping when we heard Vinny, when I heard Vinny's reaction to, you know, when, I, when I've heard Vinny as of late say those things about Mark. Now, if you're asking why I think he did it, uh, I'm just speculating here. I can't know what's inside Vinny's head. I'm sure Vinny's retrospective view is you know what? He was never the guy, man. It should have been Robert. I'm sure he believes that. And, and I'm sure there's, like I said, some truth to that. The, the only other thing I could I could think of in my speculation here is, you know, you know, let's not forget that first Slaughter record. And, you know, Vinny's uh, kicking back, trying to get a record to get all that. And he sees his former bandmates come out and not only sell two million records with this thing and not only you know be on MTV, you know, every hour on the hour. <laughs> with, with their various videos but you know the guys they, they were pretty open about it, talking about the, the difficulties and, and how tumultuous of a, a of a working relationship how, how their working relationship had devolved into somewhat of a clusterfuck you know especially during that last tour mark and dana were talking openly about that and they even have a song on the album called burning bridges which describes which, which is about vinnie vincent you know so i just i gotta believe that you know that, that, that's been on the back of his mind. And I just, I don't know, I could be wrong, but it just seems like when the guy finally comes back, even though it was, you know, nearly 30 years after the fact, 25 plus years after the slaughter record, 
that maybe this was his chance to, you know, he's got the platform, everybody's listening. Now here's a chance to strike back. Even though it was all those years ago, if he's been harboring any kind of ill will about any of that, that would be the time to do it. Otherwise, I just feel like it's a sort of heightened recollection of his feelings about Mark as a singer. You know, all these years later, he went from, a, ah, I, I prefer Robert to, I fucking hate Mark's voice and I wish Robert would have stayed. You know what I mean? Maybe right. kind of uh, turn to that. So something like that. Right. Now, now we're, we're, we're reaching the hour part uh, or hour mark of the interview. And so I will, of course, invite you to do a, a part two at some point because the, the, the whole veganism thing and animal rights, I really want to get into that. And I don't want to just sort of brush it aside with a, you know, two minutes of comment. So, so if that's okay with you, I'm going to wrap it up today with this question because the slaughter guys did move on. And you joined them somewhere around 2003, 2004, Rock Never Stops Tour. You filled in for Blas. Right. And, and we had, for a moment there, a, a Vinnie Vincent reunion minus Vinnie. Why, when they went off to do Slaughter, were you not part of that gang? Did you just sort of have enough and want to walk away? Was it your decision? Did the guys sort of turn their back on you? Did you Were you sticking with Vinnie through thick and thin? What was, why, basically, why were you not in Slaughter? Well, first of all, I always had a great relationship with Mark and Dana. There was never a time, even during that very difficult last tour, you know, where, where we ever had any issues. And it was kind of expected that I would stay with, the, stay with them and, and go on to do what would, of course, become the Slaughter record. So uh, during the tour, I kind of describe it as like there were three camps. There was Camp Vinny, there was Camp Bobby, there was Camp Mark and Dana. We all kind of knew that Mark's leaving member option was probably going to be getting picked up by Chrysalis. Dana felt it. So they were already planning the next record, like what the next record would be and how they would move on. And they were kind of expecting that I would come along. During the tour, I, I just, with, with all that was going on, I wasn't really in a position to make that decision with the guys. So I, I just said, you know, it's it just get through this thing. That, that was my, that was my, it's just get through this thing. When we got to the end of the tour, you know, it, it was such a difficult ending that I, I think there were two reasons why I ultimately decided to not go with Mark and Dana. Number one was just, uh, you know, it, it, there, there's almost like a PTSD quality. I, I don't want to like over dramatize it, but I mean, that's kind of like what it felt like to get off the road from that thing. So I just felt like they, they, almost just having the, even though even though Mark and Dana remained my allies throughout the whole thing, they, they were still kind of part of that whole energetic landscape, if you will, that, that right. was the Vinnie Vincent invasion. So I just felt like, you know what, man, I just, something's telling me I need to go in a different direction. It'd be great to stay with Mark and Dana, but I just, I feel like I need to, to, to go in a different direction. And the other thing it was, is, you know, I had always had these aspirations, even before the invasion, to kind of get into like this drummer's drummer type realm of, you know, doing like a drum video, which they were just now coming out at that point, do a drum book, maybe do a solo thing. You know, I, I always had, I was, you know, that was a direction that I at some point wanted to pursue. Obviously, I could have probably done that and slaughter. But at that time, I just felt like, you know what, man, I'm going to I'm going to cut bait here. Uh, I'm going to, you know, do, get write this first book, do this first video, maybe do some other sessions, do do some other things, and just make a clean start of it. So that that was really, I think, the overall mentality behind it. And and just to to point this out, I mean, a lot of times you know, I, I wound up uh, with the Nelson brothers about six months later, and I know that's often been portrayed as okay, it's between Nelson and Slaughter. Which one do I choose? I think I'll choose Nelson. The Nelson thing came about six months after the fact, as I mentioned. So that was 
really apples and oranges in terms of decision making. That was something that kind of uh, that, stum- that I stumbled upon much later down the road, you know. But but I, I do understand that because sometimes when, you know, if you've had a really bad relationship or or you're, you had a really bad job or you, you, you just you just don't want to go. You know, you're, you're working at whatever, let's say Walmart and it's been a real you don't want to go shop there afterwards because it's <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. And, and so uh, so I fully get that. Um, of course, uh, the boy is going to rock a drummer's journey from Houston to Hollywood in search of hair metal heaven is out now uh bobby just uh thank you so much and i and i really want to get to a part two because we haven't covered all the tours we haven't covered right. the second vision uh, of any vincent uh, invasion album uh for me you know i've got my dog right here next to me in fact I'm, I'm petting his head as i'm doing this uh the animal thing is very important to me i, I want to get into all of that and uh, for but, sure for, for sure, sure. And and but you know we're at an hour right now, so we'll let the we'll let the fans digest this, and uh, let's do this again maybe in about a month or so. What do you think? Sounds great, man. Let's plan on it. Absolutely, uh, very much looking forward to it. And uh, and, and got to say that that one day at Heavy Montreal back in I guess 2015, where I where I, I stood side stage and watched Lita perform, just a phenomenal show, phenomenal vibe, and. I was really like about, you know, 100 feet from the drum set and just watching you flail like an octopus on the drums was was <laughs> was really something spectacular and and I look forward to the next one. Thank you sir, appreciate it. Have a good one. Cheers now. You too. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.